Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday in honoring, recognizing, paying tribute, and remembering the great civil rights leader of United States history that, of course, changed the trajectory of the social winds in this country. Not to say that there is not still work to do, but on this holiday, Good afternoon to you on a Monday. My name is Jake Query. Jimmy Cook here as well. Eddie Garrison. It is Query and Company on 93.5-1075. The fan on uh, a very cold Monday. Goes without saying. And a ton to talk about. Pacers in action tonight. They're out west. I thought they actually looked pretty good against Denver, even though, uh, as Rick Carlisle said, you know, the one of the most valuable players in the NBA, Nikola Jokic, kind of taking over late in that game or having his impact felt and and beating the Pacers. Indiana-Purdue tomorrow night, NFL playoffs in the midst of things. So a ton to talk about, and I'll begin with this. I had no idea, Jimmy, none. Maybe I had some idea, but in the past, maybe I was sleeping in a cave, entirely possible. But usually once per year, once per winter, we get like the quote-unquote polar vortex that dips down and makes things like ridiculous. But don't they usually tell us that for like a weeks on out? It's like, and coming up, like be forewarned. I, I, were there, I mean, I, I knew that it was going to be like colder, but I had no idea that we were heading into like subarctic 10 below wind chills. Did you? Am I, am I totally off base? Are you asking if we missed the warning signs? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think they were probably out there, but it just seems to me like in the, like in the past, there have been times where it's been much more. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's it's January in Indianapolis. I get it, right? I knew it was going to be cold, but did you know it was going to be this cold? No, I did not. When I last looked at, and albeit I have abandoned the local <laughs> forecast in the last week just because I've been caught up in other things, whether it's broadcasts here and there or the show, but I was relying heavily on my iPhone weather app, which isn't always the most reliable thing in the world. And when I looked a week out, like, oh, it's going to be about zero on monday right it did not have the weekend forecast of oh by the way that sunday is actually going to be like negative four no i was not prepared for that so no. I, I had a a total freak out yesterday because now i don't i'm gonna show that like old man here okay whenever it gets this cold i can't be the only one in this category okay i can't be the only one that when it gets this cold i think to myself gotta have at least a quarter tank because I don't want the gas to freeze in my car. I have no, that's like probably an urban legend, right? Right. But like, but I still, I'm like, okay, I've got to at least like, you know, get at least a half a tank. You don't take any chances. So I was really low on gas yesterday. Mm-hmm. My gas thing was frozen. The little door. Ooh. So I went to open it and the little door wouldn't open. So I'm like, well, I guess I could use like my key to try to pry it open or like crack the ice. But here's the thing. As I'm looking at it. I'm like, wait a minute, which way does this little door open? Because <laughs> I'm either going to open it or I'm going to break it right off, right? Right. Now, do you know, like when you think about it right now, do you know, like does your little door open towards the driver or away from the driver? I thought it would open, so if the driving, if it's on your driver's side door, I would thought it would open towards the door. So it would open, and the end of it would be facing your door, if that makes sense. It would open left to right, not right to left. So in other words, the right side is going to be the part that pops out. I, I think that's right. I think that's correct. But wouldn't it stand to reason that it would that if you get out of your car that you wouldn't have to go like theoretically if it comes if it extends all the way out that you wouldn't have to walk around it? Does this mean that you tried and picked the wrong side? I 
I finally found on YouTube a YouTube deck, <laughs> yes. and I found a video that shows it. I'm like, okay, that looks to be correct. So anyway, so I, I did get it taken care of, but it was it was a panic moment, right? Um, did you watch Pacers Nuggets yesterday? I did. Thoughts? Considering that you have no Tyrese Halliburton and no Aaron Neesmith? Yeah, early on, I mean, I liked a lot of their action, especially in that two-man game down low with Jalen Smith and Miles Turner. I felt like they got a lot of good looks there early on from a defensive standpoint in terms of just where they were and giving themselves opportunities in that game. I tell you that whenever I see a 40-point quarter, I lose my mind. There wasn't really one of those in terms of absolute separation by the Nuggets, but you mentioned the Joker taking over late. Murray has a great game. It's another game where four starters score north of 20 in terms of an opponent on the other side of the Pacers, and it's clear, even though defensively you make enough to kind of hang around and make it a conversation late, that all the answers we knew were true. There's not the same team offensively, at least against that caliber opponent, that they are when Tyrese Halliburton's out there. Okay, here are my two things on the Pacers. Aaron Neesmith is a guy that I have openly said on this show that, like, is my favorite Pacer, right? I'm not saying he's the best player, but I just I love what he brings. To the t- he's the kind of guy that every team needs. He plays good defense. Shots don't have to come through him. He hits when he's open. He wasn't there, obviously, yesterday. He was out. But there, I have a new player. I've mentioned this guy before, Jimmy, but I'll put it to you in trivia form. Or I'll just give you the quiz. What Pacer player is quickly becoming a guy that I'm like, you, you can't keep him off the floor? And I'm developing an increased man crush with him. Isaiah Jackson. Yes. I, For a number of reasons, I love Isaiah Jackson. Partially because I, I've just heard. I mean, I'm not around it. I don't pretend to be around it. But I certainly am around people that are around it. Everything I've heard is that he is like totally low maintenance. No ego. You know, respectful guy, young guy kind of waited his time and now you know there was a time where you it was almost like you were like man is the clock running out on Isaiah Jackson to like show he's an NBA player and now when he gets in there he just makes things happen you know I mean he's just I, I love his he, he can add some some rim help in terms of rim protection but just in terms of he is not a high volume shooter but when he but he is a an efficient scorer and I just think that he gives them a depth that is in an area that is critical for them. And I love his game. And I thought he showed it yesterday again. Just love the way he plays. But, um, yeah, down the stretch, obviously, you know, look, Denver, it, it, as you're watching it, I mean, you're talking about one of the best teams in the league, obviously, very good at home. And you would have liked to have gotten that one because it was within grasp for you. But I think you have to be encouraged. certain. Maybe at this point we're a little too late in the year and, and with this group they're a little too mature to say like, well, you're it's a good stepping stone, yeah. but I don't think you can be totally discouraged is probably yeah. an easier way to say it. The reason it's a double-edged sword, you can make yourself feel better or you can make yourself more frustrated depending on which glass half full, glass half empty angle you take with this stat. It's a testament to how good the Nuggets are. It's a testament to them being defending champions. It's also a testament to where the Pacers are without Tyrese Halliburton, which, again, is not a fair measuring stick because he is very much your face of the franchise. How many teams at any level, let alone in the NBA, 
could turn the ball over 21 times and win by eight. Like, the Nuggets had 21 turnovers in that game, but it never really felt like they were monumental turnovers based on A, where they were, and B, late, it felt like Denver always had some type of answer. Where you get a nice layup or a nice mid-range jump shot for the Pacers on one end, it'd be responded by a Michael Porter Jr. triple or an Aaron Gordon triple on the other end. Nuggets are just a good team, and it's that same aspect of when we were talking about the Pacers losing the Celtics in the first go-round last week, even though it happened on the weekend, but we recapped it on Monday. Some of these teams have that luxury of there are just multiple stars or multiple players that fully understand their role, and they can give it to you any given night. When one's not there, the other one's going to rise to the occasion. The Pacers don't fully have that luxury. Their selling point, which is a great one to have, especially in the regular season, is they're the highest scoring bench unit in the NBA. At least they were going into yesterday. And that's something that is very helpful, especially on nights like tonight where you're going into a back-to-back and you're going to need people to step up and kind of carry you over the hump of what is a long West Coast trip. They still have the opportunity to do what I wanted them to do, which is, I get it, two and four might be somewhat loser mentality, but that's just the state of how difficult this West Coast trip is. You go three and three or better, you're coming home, back to Gambridge Fieldhouse, hopefully with Tyrese Halliburton, back in your pocket as well, feeling pretty good about where you stand. Each day, Jake, I'm looking at the... I just am. I know it's January. I'm looking at where they stack up with the rest of the Eastern Conference. They're still at my bar, which is in the playoffs. Not a play-in tournament team, but the margin for error is so tight between like 6 through 10, and I'm sure there's not a ton of people that are looking at it that closely right now. You're talking about a game separating standing points. They can't afford to have a slug where they end up going 1-5 and on this road trip, and at this stage, I don't think they will. I think that bench is going to be enough to carry them on nights like tonight where they're against Utah. By the way, somebody somebody just pointed this out to me, and now I feel like an idiot, but it's a perfect point. The, the little door on your gas thing mm-hmm. is designed so that if you leave it open, once you start driving, the wind coming from the front of the car towards mm-hmm. the back shuts it. Perfect way to remember it from now on. Yep, there you go. I'll never forget now. Hey, Jake, how could you possibly not have known it was going to be cold? You talked about Kansas City's cold weather all week, and we're always the next day because it goes from west east. I, I don't mean that as, what, as much as what I'm saying is... Like, usually when it's going to be this cold, you have the local news meteorological weather orgy of, like, every, you know, like, nonstop coverage, break-in. Jackets-off weather? Yes. All that, right? Like, the whole deal. And I didn't hear, like, usually it's like they do promos for it and, you know, storm team such and such nonstop coverage. And I didn't hear any of that. That's all I'm saying. I didn't see. I didn't see any more other than your usual winter storm advertisements, right? Like they highlight. I can't remember who all the crew is, but one of the local news stations are highlighting. Like I've been around this for twenty five years, but it's not dedicated just to this cell. It's dedicated to the totality of the winter storm season, right? right? Uh, versus what you're talking about, which is fair, where it's in your face. Hey, coming up next week, look in early forecast models at like three to four inches of snow, and look how cold. Maybe that's what it is, Jake. Maybe you and I did not have our antennas up because we were more worried about when is the big blizzard coming versus cold temperatures. Right. That, that Maybe it's because we don't have an accumulation of, yeah, expect a foot well, coming up versus, thing. hey, minus two. How often do you watch local news? I, I hate to say that. I love a lot of those people, but anymore, how often do you watch local sure. news? So maybe it's me. Um Don Fisher going to join us, by the way, just a little over 15 minutes from now. We will preview big one tomorrow night, Indiana and Purdue. And that's going to be on Peacock. And for those that did you did you download Peacock for the Chiefs game, Jimmy? Uh, we did, yes. So did we. It was. It's Shannon's like, let's just get it. And we didn't have it. 
So we, we I pull up the screen and she's like, it's $2 a month. Like people are acting like this is like, and I get it, but I mean, you know, so we did watch it. Um, I would imagine that's probably entry level pricing. I would assume after 12 months that bad boy's probably going to go up to 10. Maybe I'm maybe, wrong on that. Maybe, but I, but I would think that's usually standard operating price, but, but about was, 10 bucks. But it's two bucks for the year. I mean, sure. 24 I mean, that's, bucks that's, for the year. That's quite a deal. Um, I'll be honest. I, I didn't. I, I thought the Chiefs Dolphins game was just kind of run of the mill. I, I mean, there wasn't anything that. I mean, other than the cold and the helmet crack, there, there wasn't a whole lot that jumped out. Like, oh my gosh, I'm, this is just pins and needles. I mean, you kind of knew right away that it was over before it began. To be honest with you, the story without it, there are two big storylines from actually three, three storylines from Wild Card Weekend. The first being. Well, I guess four now that I think about it, because one of them is going to be today. Pittsburgh and Buffalo. And and look, I know that people are like, football is supposed to be in the elements. Why are they postponing this game? That's soft. It's weak. I'm going to say this once, and I'll say it loudly for those of you in the back of the room, okay? It had nothing to do with the elements of trying to play a football game. It had everything to do with the fact that the city was shut down, essentially, and that's Buffalo, New York. But you couldn't have gotten people there. That was the thing. Like you, you, the, the roads were impassable. It was impossible to get people in and out of the stadium. And you would have had people trying to go to the game. And even if you said like, you know, like the, the, the COVID Indy 500, when it's like, we're not allowing fans, even if they'd done that, people still would have tried to do so. And it would have been a, a public hazard. And I know that that's crazy. And people are like, it's soft, you're soft. It's in Buffalo. It was a historic level storm, even by Buffalo standards. Yeah, they showed clips on Twitter from Buffalo's account, from NFL Network, a couple other places of Orchard Park during the time slot yesterday that it was supposed to air and be played. You could not see. Like, Jake's right. It wasn't about playing the game. It was about getting there and the safety of everybody involved. But just from a visibility standpoint, it, it would not have been a viewing pleasure for either anybody there or for people at home. It looked dreadful. And honestly, that aspect of it, for me anyway, is not the type of potential crescendo or handoff leading into the Monday slate that I would have wanted to see in what was an otherwise storyline-packed Sunday of NFL playoff football. I didn't need visibility was terrible, 6 nothing win for Buffalo, mixed, at, mixed extra point right. is how that happens. I didn't need that. I'm happy it's today. So that was storyline number one. Storyline number two is Jordan Love's really good. And, and, yeah. and he continues to, I think, grow as a Packers quarterback, which takes us to storyline number three, and that is the Dallas Cowboys with their annual, who cares, right? I mean, sorry if you're a Cowboys fan, but, you know, look, I, I looked it up yesterday. I mean, the last time that they advanced past the divisional round, the the number one song on the radio was Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. I mean, come on. You know, it's been a quarter century now, so – just another franchise, but the big storyline, and, and there actually is, I'm going to go uh, beyond like the, the obvious part of this. Okay. But guys, I brought it in today. It's been a while since I've worn it. As a matter of fact, my head, I think has, has shrunk or I must, when I bought this hat, I must have more hair because it it's, fits a little large. Or you had more brain. That's right. Well, that's, that goes without saying. <laughs> I am rocking right now my, and I bought this years ago when I worked at WIBC, and I got laid off from there. I was in San Francisco later for an IndyCar race, and I went into a sporting goods store, 
at Pier 49, and I'm like, I'm going to buy a hat of a, t- a random team. And the Detroit Lions had gone winless that year. And I thought, you know what? They're the only group that had a year that was the equivalent of mine. So I bought a hat. And then, as I have mentioned a thousand times over, when I had my heart attack and went in and Dr. Mottman came in as I was as we were waiting to go into the cath lab. So while I was in the midst of my heart attack and I said, are you a football fan? He said, yeah. And I said, who? And he said, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. And then I said, you should take a picture of me. And he said, why? And I said, because for your entire life, people ask you what it's like to be a Detroit Lions fan. This probably is exactly what that looks like, right? Um, I thought yesterday the story of that game, and it was a, you watched last night, right? The I Rams did. and the Lions? Yes. Yep. Good game. Wonderful um, game. Matthew Stafford is an amazing guy because of the fact that not only does he have an incredible arm and he can make throws that are amazing, but seems like every game you watch Matthew Stafford play, there's at least twice where he like goes into the medical tent and you know, you think like, well, oh my gosh, he's he's dead. I can't believe it. Like he actually and then he just comes back up to life and you know, is he a drama queen or I I don't know. I mean it happened here when the when the Rams won in overtime, he could barely walk. But I thought the the as I was watching that game, I got to thinking about this, and I think that that there are certain times where sports actually can represent something that that all of us can relate to or connect to. And they there was much to be made about the fact, and you kind of felt bad for Lions fans because I saw videos of like Lions fans crying in their living room, and like people in the stands were crying, and you're like, they won a wild card game. Right. I mean, like, but that, you know, you feel for, I mean, it shows how long, like just how long suffering it's been 32 years. Well, and not only that, but it's, it's beyond 30, it's 32 years of total ineptitude Correct. for the most part. Right. Yes. Um, but Jared Goff is a born and raised California guy. So he's born in California. He grows up in California. He plays collegiately at California. And he gets drafted number one overall by his home state, Los Angeles Rams. And they're good. He, they had one, remember the year they played, I think it was Kansas City, Jimmy. It was like kind of the Patrick Mahomes coming out party where it was like oh, the a Monday pinball, night. Yeah, yeah, it was like a pinball machine. Monday right? night at the Coliseum. And it was, yeah, like the highest scoring game, I think. It was crazy. Monday night ever. It was awesome. And, and the Rams were. You know, the, the Rams are a proud franchise, don't get me wrong, and, but I mean, it was like watching the greatest show on turf Rams of St. Louis, where Jared Goff was leading this offense where he's just like airdropping passes all over the place, and you know, they were truly a transcendent level offense, and he takes them to the Super Bowl, and then he gets to the Super Bowl, and it was as though... He like defenses just started giving him stunts that he, he had no idea what was going on, and the narrative became like, well, gosh, he's a great player, but he can't read defenses, and he he can't adjust on the fly, and he wasn't prepared for the Super Bowl, and he kind of you know withers away. And so this guy that that grows up in California, plays collegiately in California, gets drafted in Los Angeles has a swimsuit model girlfriend, is walking the Santa Monica Pier as the quarterback of the Rams that went to the Super Bowl, and then in the Super Bowl, everything collapses, and then he ends up getting traded to not only the most inept and historically stuck-in-the-mud franchise in American professional sports, but in addition to that, 
in a city that instead of known for being 72 and sunny every day with the glitz and glamour of a boardwalk, <laughs> he goes to a place that is a city that is a, a blue-collar, hard-luck city that really saw its heyday during the F. Scott Fitzgerald era, and it's gloomy and gray and cloudy. and Like, I've been to Detroit 20 times in my life. I don't know that I've ever seen the sun in Detroit. And I'm not saying it's not a cool city and not a great city and that I don't have a great respect for the people and the grit, you know, all grit of the Lions. But Jared Goff had every reason when he went to the Detroit Lions, he had every reason to just say, I'm just going to write up my contract, man, and get out of here and go back to the Santa Monica Pier. And he went there, and you didn't hear a lot about him at first. You know, when he went to the Lions, like, I mean, they, they started out completely inept, and then eventually they won a game, remember, and there was like a video that went viral of his girlfriend on a Sports Illustrated swimsuit shoot, like in a coast in South Africa or something like that, like going crazy, jumping around in her bikini, and people are like, well, life's good for Jared Goff, is it? She's celebrating because they just snapped like a nine-game losing streak a couple of years ago. But... And then they get this coach that comes in and he talks about like biting ankles and people are like, what an ogre, this guy, like what a joke. But that team bought in and not only did they buy in, but Jimmy, they had a guy in Jared Goff. I think we all can learn a lesson from that, honestly. And I'm not trying to over romanticize a storyline that has no relevance really in Indianapolis, except for this. And that is that sometimes beyond totally your own control, things can change around you. Your company decides to go in a different direction or suddenly you get a new boss or you know they they move you from this department to that department and you're still getting a paycheck and you're still whatever but like it's just not the comfort zone that you've always known and you've got to push yourself or for anybody whether you're going away to college or you're taking a new job or you're moving into a new residence like change is hard for some people and yet this guy not only went from change, but he went totally to the antithesis of anything that he ever has been comfortable with, ever been known, and just kind of kept quiet by all account from what I know. I mean, I don't cover the Lions exclusively, but or, or you know, intimately, but like, you know, I'm a peripheral flyby Lions observer, but by all account, he just went in and did what he was asked of him, and then he goes in against his former team against a quarterback that had been traded away from the franchise he went to because the city felt like they owed it to that guy to finally get him a chance to try to win because it was never going to happen in Detroit. And the quarterback that went and actually not only took the same team to the Super Bowl that he did, but won one with him. And he goes in there with an entire city's hopes resting on his shoulders for a night and starts out and hits like his first 11 passes, and then when the game comes down to the white knuckle, chewing your fingernails, oh my gosh, and you can bet that entire state of Michigan, I guarantee you, from Battle Creek to Kalamazoo to Ypsilanti to Iron Mountain, that entire state of Michigan yesterday was waiting for the Lions to let that one slip between their fingertips. And when it came down to it, he completed a pass that was right on the money in a in a big cojones play call to win the game and salt it away. And then afterwards, you could tell he's emotional, but he says, you know what? 
This is actually about my guys. It's about the rest of the team. And I'm sorry if you and I know in this town people are Colts fans. I get it. I I have no rooting interest in the Detroit Lions, the fighting Dr. Botmans. I you know, but if if you are somebody watching the NFL playoffs right now with no rooting interest, you just found your team. At least for this cycle of the playoffs, you just found your team. Other teams might have better players, might have better seasons, might have better stadiums, might have better cities, but in terms of a great storyline for right now that eventually would get old if they keep winning, but for right now, the Detroit Lions, you got to like it, and you got to like what Jared Goff did. Uh, Indiana-Purdue coming up tomorrow night. Big one, big one, big one on Peacock. Don Fisher going to join us, the voice of the Hoosiers. Talk about it next. Big, big, big one tomorrow night at Assembly Hall in Bloomington. 7 o'clock tip. You can hear the game on our sister station, 93 WIBC, with the voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher, who joins us now. And Don, I'm going to begin with this before we really get into the Purdue nuances of it. Uh, That Minnesota game, of course, on a Friday night to kick off the weekend, I thought for Indiana really encouraging because we have known, and I've heard a lot about from people that watch in practice what a great shooter McKenzie Ambaco is, but you and I talked about it last week that he kind of just needed to be turned loose, like, you know, maybe even like get out of the structure a little bit and just kind of let his relax a little bit and go. And it seems to me for a freshman player that McKenzie Mbako, that Minnesota game was the sign of that, that the, that the training wheels are coming off a little bit. Is that is that kind of understating it or is that accurate? I think it's fairly accurate. I, I think the thing about it, Jake, is this. Um, this guy has been learning the game a little bit from the standpoint of going from the college level to the, to, or from the high school level to the college level. And it's taken him a while, but you know, each ball game, he seems to get a little bit more comfortable. Obviously the biggest issue as far as playing time was concerned was his defensive issues. And he just wasn't playing very good at the defensive end of the floor. And Mike has always said, look, you're going to have to play defense first. And then the offense will come. Well, obviously, when you don't have a lot of playing time, and he hadn't had a ton of it up until the last three, four weeks, um, you know, it just didn't come as quickly as people wanted. But I think the thing about him that he did in this Minnesota ball game that I hadn't really seen a lot of before, he drove the ball to the basket. When guys came out on him and tried to stop him from shooting the three, he, he went around a lot of people in this game and got to the rim aggressively, which is the first time I've seen that on a consistent basis in a game itself throughout this season. So I think that was a big plus. And then, of course, he was knocking down his threes. And, you know, as a three-point shooter, we've talked about him a lot, being that one of his strengths, but we hadn't seen a lot of it up to this point. However, in the last six ball games, he's hitting 48% on 14 of 29 from the arc. So that tells you that he's really starting to feel comfortable. And, Don, with that, you know, I remember a year ago, let's go back to when, you know, Indiana-Purdue, and in particular that game in Mackey where Jalen hood Shafino was so good, right? I listened to your entire broadcast of that, and, you know, I could tell as you're calling it when he was hitting shots, you were seeing it before your eyes, right, where it was kind of all coming together for him. But yeah. but clearly Indiana found something with hood Shafino to kind of break down in the mid-range game Purdue defensively. If they're going to try to replicate that, if Mike Woodson looks at that film and says, well, we did it with Jalen hood Shafino, is Mbako capable of that? Can he be a guy that gets into, or or is that more, let's say, an Xavier Johnson role, to kind of get into that soft lane and hit that mid-range shot? 
Well, to your point, <laughs> I don't know what role Xavier Johnson currently has. Yeah, you're right. Because he started to struggle a little bit since he came back from uh, his month-long uh, injury issue. Um, but that being said, I, I can't tell you what Mike's game plan is for this contest. I can tell you that Mbako is going to be a key. I think he has to be a key in this ball game. They're going to need an outside shooter. They're going to need somebody that hits it more consistently, and he's been the most consistent of uh, anybody that India's pl- any has played this year. So th- they need him to do that kind of thing. Now, whether it's in the same role as what Jalen Hood Shafino did it or not, I don't know. I-, I don't know what the game plan is at this point. And I talked to Mike this morning briefly, and he wouldn't tell me what his game plan was. <laughs> so <laughs> at any rate, all I can tell you is at this juncture, I'm just glad the kid's playing better. But I think this is going to be a huge challenge for this Indiana basketball team because consistency is not the thing that we've seen the most of out of this ball club so far this year. And I think uh, if they could play a game like they did against Minnesota, at least from the standpoint of getting everybody involved like they did. I mean, obviously, Trey Galloway had a tremendous ball game against Minnesota. Uh, Looked like he could be an actual point guard. I mean, and, and we've said that about him before. Last year, he got a lot of opportunity because of the injury to Xavier Johnson. And, and I think he's kind of embraced that role more so this year than he did a year ago, but he hasn't been consistent with his performances. So in my mind right now, I think this team has to play a really good basketball game just to have a chance in this contest, because I think Purdue's that good. Voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher is our guest. Don, you mentioned Xavier Johnson, not with the inconsistencies not starting this past game against Minnesota. Instead, it's Gabe Cups. They've asked a lot out of the freshman already in his young Hoosier career. It's not a scoring threat against Minnesota, but it is his defensive tenacity. Holds Elijah Hawkins, among others, to five points on two-for-12 shooting. When Purdue can attack you in so many different ways, and especially such if you're focused on Edie, going to kick it out to shooters or go with their guard play, regardless of if Cups starts or not tomorrow night, how important is what he's been able to do defensively as a freshman to their overall attack against Purdue? Well, it's hugely important because if you look at the guard play so far this year, when Galloway and Cups play together, the guards for the other ball club don't seem to do as well. It's because both those guys are so aggressive at the defensive end of the floor. And I, I honestly, I, I know that Purdue's guards are much better than they were a year ago, too. Uh, so I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. And you know, you've heard Mike Woodson say he's not been happy with his perimeter play uh, for a long time now, um, and it's because of the inconsistency more than anything else. And I don't think it's because he doesn't think Trey's a good player or Gabe Cups doesn't do enough for those. I think it's because the consistency level of the guard play has just not been there. And of course, Xavier Johnson, since they he came back from the injury in the last uh, four ball games now has not been consistent. In fact, he's had three bad ball games compared to the one good one, which was the Ohio State contest. So I think the guard play in this game is going to be a critical factor. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Khalil Ware facing up against Zach Eady for the first time, that's going to be an interesting matchup. And obviously, uh, uh, Trey, uh, Trey Kaufman-Wren is another guy that didn't play a ton last year against IU, and we haven't seen a lot of him, but he's obviously playing pretty well for this ball club and they've got a deeper bench than they've had in some time Caleb first who started the last two years isn't even a starter this year uh they've got Camden Hyde who's a redshirt freshman from Minnesota that's starting to play better and I think the best 
sixth man in the in the maybe in the country might be Mason Gillis. This guy just does all those little things that you absolutely love out of a basketball player. And I just think because they are better and Lance Jones, and we haven't even mentioned him, and he's he's come on to be one of their better scorers. Uh, you, you've got a basketball team that's deep. They have all the talent in the world. And for Indiana to beat them, they'll have to play the best game they've played all season long. Don, maybe unfair to ask because I realize you don't see Purdue game in and game out, but clearly you're familiar with them. I, from what you've seen, do you think Purdue's strength is more that they have a style and a versatility that is just impossible to, to try to corral? Or are they good enough and versatile enough that they find out what you do, what style you want to play, and take you out of it? In other words, are you when you go up against Purdue more often than not, are you trying to impo- impose your will on them or simply stave off their will on you? Well, <laughs> I don't, I, you're right. I haven't seen enough of the Boilermakers at this point. I just I know a lot about them, but I, don't, I haven't seen them as much as most people have. Uh, I just think they're a ball club that is really well coached. I think Matt Painter gets his kids to play the roles that he wants them to play. I think he gets his players to understand exactly how they want to uh, perform out there. I think they're always a good, pretty good defensive team. Uh, you know, I think the one thing that they've got that nobody else has is Zach Eady. Yeah. And to have a guy like that, I mean, there's just, there's, there's, what do you do? How do you stop him? You know, Don, uh, you really can't. The thing that's that, to me, that's so impressive about Zach Eady, and, and this sounds so elementary. It's, it's, it almost sounds absurd, but he has such a, a, for as big as he is. And for oftentimes when he, when he's posting down low, and tell me if this makes sense. He has an incredible awareness at all times of where he is in relation to the basket. I think sometimes yep. guys playing down low, they turn around and, and they're thrown off a little bit as to how deep or how far out they are. He seemingly has an incredible feel for his size, which to me, it, you just don't see that to that level, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and here's the other thing about him, and, and I really believe this. This guy works at the game. I mean, he has gotten better every year he's been at Purdue. The first time I saw him play for Purdue, I just thought he was a lumbering ox out there. I didn't think he was that great. I mean, he was big and he was strong and, you know, you had a tough time with him, but he wasn't playing great basketball. The second time I saw him was the same year. The second time in his first year at at Purdue, I thought he'd already made dramatic improvements in his game and I've seen that each and every year he has played. The one thing I haven't seen him do, and it's just like Trace Jackson Davis, I haven't seen him shoot a lot of jump shots. I don't know if he's a great uh, jump shot shooter or not because he doesn't have to do that, right. and they don't ask him to. But I'll tell you this, the NBA people have now put him in the lottery, which, you know, that didn't happen before. So that tells you that already they've seen something this year that they hadn't seen previously. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly that, to your point, Don, the level of – just kind of the comfort with his feet, if that makes sense, like just his fleet of foot. You know, he he made AC Earl look like Usain Bolt when he first got there, and then <laughs> you know, and now like he's got a pretty good feel. He's grown into his body where that same trajectory you know makes you wonder like two years from now what this guy could be right in at a professional level. Um, I want to get back to Xavier Johnson though, real quick, because you said something I think is interesting. Look, we know he has the capability of being a talented player, and I know that maybe injury has hurt him a little bit. To me, Don, what is frustrating, and I'm very on the outside, but for a player of his age and his experience level, 
some of the immature things that have set him aside <laughs> during the game to me are just head pounding. Is I know he. Is there any chance he falls out of rotation, or does his offensive potential keep him in rotation at all times? Well, if you look at his play in the last four games, you you can't be happy. Um, if I'm the head coach, I'm not happy. Um, and and I, I just think that he struggles with doing, uh, I don't know, playing the right way sometimes. I, mean, I think he tries to play the way he thinks he should play or the way he wants to play rather than the way the coaches have asked him to play. I, I, I don't know if that's the right if, if if that's the right construction on what I'm saying here, all I can tell you is sometimes you get a game like he had against Ohio State. He was spectacular in that game. He didn't do anything wrong. He was doing everything right. Uh, he scored the basketball. He got the ball where it needed to be. He helped other people. He was terrific at the defensive end. And that's the only game out of the first four we've seen him since coming back from that injury in December, which he made him miss the entire, almost the entire month of December. It's the only time he's played well, and, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if he just doesn't get it, if he's just not mature enough to handle it. Uh, I can't answer the question for you. All I can tell you is we need him. Indiana needs him to be a good player, and thus far, the, outside of the Ohio State game, you can't say that. Don, we know inevitably, Don Fisher, voice of the Hoosiers, taking some time with us here on Query and Company, we know inevitably that doubles will come for ED. They, they, they almost have to with how dominant that he is. But when you look at the structure of this matchup, if you could pick one area that Indiana has to have, is it consistent three-point shooting or is it Kalel Ware not being overtaken or shying away from the challenge that is guarding the likely two-time National Player of the Year in Zach Eady? This might sound strange to you, but I honestly believe if Indiana doesn't turn the ball over, they will give themselves a chance. I think turnovers have been such an issue with this ball club. When they played their best, they don't turn the ball over. When they play their worst, they turn it over a a ton of times. And we've just seen that too much this year. Um, I, I think the turnover factor, and I think the other area too is rebounding because that's the other area that Mike has been concerned with. They just haven't had great, consistent rebounding this year either. And Malik Renew is a big part of that. that. That's why, I mean, he's only averaging right at six rebounds a ball game. That's not enough for a guy at 6'9", 233, who's as physical as he is. Khalil Ware, I mean, here in recent ball games, he's averaging like 13 rebounds a ball game. I mean, he had 17 rebounds, I think, in the game against uh, Rutgers. Um, I think he had 14 and a double-double against uh, Minnesota. Um, and he's had multiple uh, double-figure rebound ball games this year. In fact, in Big Ten play, I think he's averaging 11 a contest. So, I, you know, I, I think the rebounding and the turnovers and the turnovers specifically, they, they'll give themselves a chance to win if they take care of the basketball. If they don't, they've got no chance. Dom, one of my favorite things as we get set for Indiana-Purdue, every year I do this, I always send a tweet that says, okay, whether you are an IU or Purdue fan, tell me the player of the other school that deep down you never admitted it, but you always kind of liked the guy as a player. <laughs> the two IU guys that get the most votes in this are always Calbert Chaney and Damon Bailey, and the two Purdue players that always get the most votes 
are Robbie Hummel and Troy Lewis. But deep down, a lot of people are like, I hated him, but I kind of like Brian Cardinal too. (laughs) Cardinal's one of those guys, like, you didn't like him, but you knew if that guy was on my team, that'd be my favorite player of all time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you think about it, I mean, you could put Brian Cardinal on the Purdue side, and you could put Dane Fife on the Indiana side, and you'd have a pair there. That's exactly right. No, you're exactly right. <laughs> Same dude, right? Don, absolutely. Have a good call tomorrow night. We'll be listening to it on ninety three WIBC Indiana and Purdue. Always fun. Always appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate right, Don it. Don Fisher, the voice of the Indiana Hoosiers. Dave Rebson, by the way. The Big Ten Network's going to join us at 1.30. We'll talk more about that. And then Mike Chappell coming up top of the hour to get the latest on just the NFL in general and, of course, the Colts. As we roll along here on Dr. Martin Luther King Day, 93.5, The Fan. Rolling along here on a Monday, Jake Quarry along with Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, spinning the Elton John hits for us. Little fun fact for you guys. Apparently, uh, Derek Schultz has seen Elton John in concert. Is Elton John or Billy Joel like 20 times because his parents were huge fans? And he was like, man, I don't want to go. Elton John would be pretty cool to see, don't you think? Just to say you've done it. When, At this point, he's done. But Well, this is being very, like, I'm being very biased towards Derek and the region that he grew up in. But, like, wouldn't it be more likely that it was Billy Joel? Well, yeah, because of the garden. Right. Yeah. Um, but if it is Elton John, yeah, that'd be a fun concert to go see. I think that was before... You know, I don't. I don't know when it was that Billy Joel started doing basically residence at the Garden. Yeah, probably in the last ten years or so, mm-hmm. something like that. Because they just honored him with like a, or it was like a hundredth consecutive week or what it was. There was some ceremony honoring him outside the Garden in the fall. I just can't remember what it was. I, Billy Joel to me, I, I've always. I'm not a huge fan of it. I mean, he, you know, his songs are fine, right? I mean, he's he's fine. Um, but I've always liked Billy Joel just because I've never heard anything other than he's like the nicest dude ever. Springsteen, I think, falls into the same category. But I, you know, I had a buddy that when I lived in St. Louis, uh, my my buddy Brad, he and his then girlfriend were going to see Elton John, or excuse me, uh, Billy Joel, at the Keel Center in St. Louis, and they, you know, they had tickets in the rafters, and they're getting in their seat, and some guy comes up and is like, "You guys, big fans of Billy Joel, or you know, Billy?" And he's like, "Well, you know, clearly we're at the concert," and he goes, "Well, listen, I work for him, and every concert he likes to find." couple dozen people that are sitting way up high and upgrade their seats. And so they sat like right off of the stage. He had like a little bullpen set up where they, they went and found people that That's were awesome. sitting in the cheap seats and moved them down. That's great. And then I had I, another guy that I know was bartending uh, in New York. I think Billy Joel, if I'm not mistaken, Billy Joel doesn't drink, but um, came in and got something to eat. And it was late at night and gave him a huge tip, you know, tipped him like $500 or something. Said he was like super nice. But um, anyway, so obviously you watched your Kansas City Chiefs, Jimmy. What overall jumped out at you about wildcard weekend? What was your overriding observation? Was it more for you about teams underperforming or teams that like Houston or Green Bay that kind of exceeded what you thought going in? I mean, you touched on the biggest story for me already, and that was what the Lions were able to do. And part of that is because of the drought, how much they've gone through over the last 32 years in the 0-16 season. Locally, it was hard not to look at yet another highlight performance from C.J. Stroud with Envy because there's a lot you can blame Ballard for, and I don't know if this is a fair conversation piece or not, but we had said it. I know Eddie and I had gone in depth with it. We were doing the, uh, the midday show during the draft last year, and it was... The Panthers did the right thing 
they took the wrong guy. Like, by all accounts, ownership in Carolina wanted Young. Stroud was the guy you trade up for. It's easy to say that in hindsight, I get, but we and a lot of other people as well said it then. Hey, I and remember. you could have made that trade. I remember going in the draft, I was like, I love C.J. Stroud. Yep. Loved him. Yep. Remember uh, Josh McCown, the offensive coordinator or quarterback? Dapping him up. They're yeah. dapping up Stroud. They're, they were talking about, all oh. right, we'll see you in, in February or Frank April Reich or whatever. looked like he was ready to like Correct. ask him if he wanted to marry yes. his daughter. I mean, he was like following him around. He looked like a starstruck. <laughs> at C.J. Stroud's pro day, Frank Reich looked like a starstruck teenager at a Taylor Swift yeah, show, right? Yes, I would agree. I mean, it was like, holy cow. The, the good news for the Colts is, Anthony Richardson is still going to have his say, and there's no reason that he can't right. join this forefront of a youth movement, but with the season that you had with him regrettably not being available due to injury, it's hard not to look at what, yes, the Texans defense played well, but they did it against a Browns defense, Stroud did, that many well-educated people Eddie in the league- Eddie and I both said we thought could carry him to the Super could Bowl, Could carry right? them to the Super Bowl, right. and he dissected them. So that, that's probably, of all of them outside non-Lions division, the biggest thing- that took me. We'll get Mike Chappell's thoughts on all of it next. What does everybody want to do when it is sub-zero outside? When the wind chill is 20 below, when your windshield needs to be scraped, you do what we're about to do right now, and that is go to the beach. We're just going to Beach Grove. I uh, we joining were us break now. Out some blankets. What's I, that? I thought we were going to get some blankets out and bundle That's up right. here. I thought you were going to chat fireside with us. No, well, we could do that too. But right. uh, joining us now on the program, he is the dean of football writers here in Central Indiana from CBS Four and WXIN. Mike Chapel joins us. Um, Chap, first things first. Uh, I want to ask you this off, off the box because if there's anybody that would know, uh, it would be you. But you know, I think Colts fans are now aware that the Colts had issued a statement before Chris Ballard met with the media last week regarding Jim Irsay simply saying that he was um, battling a severe upper respiratory illness and Chris Ballard had said that he was stable and they were working through that, didn't know if there was any update on the Colts owner. No, I wish we had one, uh, but no. So, yeah, it's then your mind starts wandering, but no, no updates and Oh, I guess all we can do again. I've known Jim since they moved here in '84. We're we're as close as media and, and an owner can be. I uh, consider him a friend, but no, you, all you can do is keep him in your thoughts, and hopefully he is is getting better. Most of me back running the team that he really a lot loves, like his family. You know, this period, Mike, is so critical. Obviously, maybe not right now. But when you start getting into, you know, free agency talk and then also, you know, getting ready for the draft and those sorts of things, um, you know, I would assume that Jim Mersey is a a major piece in that. And my thought process is, well, wow, you know, if he's not around and inside the facility, you know, how do things run without him? And he, but but that said, how involved I mean, I know he's involved, but how involved? Like in other words, is there kind of precedent for if if he's battling a health illness for them to kind of operate business as usual without him around or would it be truly unprecedented well no i i think he he's an owner that most of the time he puts people in place and lets them do their jobs now we've obviously got several incidents over the last few years where that's not been the case and he's he's taken power back i think this part of of running a team on the field roster building is more Chris Ballard, Ed Dobbs, 
and Shane Steichen and the coaches. I think this is when they do the heavy lifting, sort of playing out what they want to do. And I think the owner is more involved when it comes time to moving forward with, okay, this is what we want to do. This is, this is the financial parameters. I don't, I don't, I really don't think the owner is that involved. He's always involved because he, he, he knows what he's doing and he does like to have his hands in this to some degree. But this, this point here is still more the coaches and personnels and the GMs and all those people. It will be more upper management when it comes time to affixing budgetary terms to what you want to do and what you can do. So, you know, in in the grand scheme of things, this this is not a, a, a serious thing as far as him not being. And maybe he is. Again, we do we just don't know. But I, I just don't think this is a period right now that him being perhaps out of the loop is that big of a deal. Mike, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mike Chappell, our guest, and you know it's probably a moot point now. But I am curious because sometimes I like to to test my memory and find out if I'm remembering something. You know, sometimes you you remember something and it's embellished, or you think like, well, actually that wasn't accurate over time. Am I correct in saying that during the drafting process, and I know that that you know he sat and learned for a long time before what we've seen out of Jordan Love in Green Bay. But his name was kind of floated around at times because it was during the period where the Colts first would have started looking for a quarterback. But Chris Ballard was not uh, necessarily sold on Jordan Love. Am I remembering that correctly? I think that's fair. And, again, that's, it's been a while, so I really don't remember the particulars. And, and he always met with us when it, when it worked post-draft to kind of go over things. Yeah, I, I don't think he was bullish on him. Uh, and... You know Matthew Stafford and all those. I, I don't think so, but but yeah, it's. I mean, th- there's a lot of people that might be, be rethinking their evaluation of, of of Jordan Love after the way the way he's playing, and that's why you hope to high heavens that you've got it right with with Richardson because it, it's, it makes everything easier when that's not a position you're dealing with. I mean, we talked when we talked to Chris Ballard last week. It was. You know, when we're sitting there with him, last year at this time he had no head coach or, or quarterback, so it just makes things when you can, when you can cross those two things off of your your list, uh, hopefully for a while, then it makes all the other pieces putting those in place a lot easier. But yeah, I don't think they were over the top enthralled with with Jordan Love, and you know maybe now in hindsight they should have been, but. This is where we are. But you yeah, know, like, Green Bay. It's it's a copycat league in a lot of extents. And, and this is probably the anomaly now with Jordan Love, but but Green Bay has this kind of pattern, right? Jordan Love had to sit and watch Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers had to sit and watch Brett Favre. Brett Favre, even though it wasn't necessarily in Green Bay, sat and watched for a while, you know, got some reps in Atlanta, but are we going to? Is it possible we go back to that the way it used to be, where you draft a quarterback and he sits for a year or two, or are the C.J. Strouds, the Anthony Richardsons, the like push him out and and unwind him? Is that still going to be the way it's going to be moving forward? Oh, I think that's going to be the way moving forward. The only way the other one, the other one works is if you've got the guy and it's clear that in a year or two he's going to be gone, and then oh by the way, you've got to have somebody there 
to, to step in to, to groom for a year or two. You know, I, I'm guessing that Jordan Love sat a little bit longer than would have been ideal. You know, Trey Lance didn't work out, but that was sort of the plan there. So, yeah, it, it's it's just you have to have things, you know, the dominoes have to be in place to make that work, and primarily having the guy. You know, there was there was always talk that Bob Kravitz always used to laugh about is, well, you, you draft Andrew Luck and let him play a couple of years behind Peyton, and then you move on. No, that, was, that was never going to work on a lot of levels for a lot of reasons. But I guess that's ideal if you, if you can afford to do that. And, and you've also got to be in position to, to I don't want to say, to, to invest a year or two in a draft pick, a high draft pick, that's not going to play for you. Now, that's that's certainly taking the long-term approach, which that, that's that's ideal. It really is. I just think that, most teams aren't able to do that. That's why you see you draft a guy top four and, and these guys play right away. And, and you just hope that you've got the right one. And, you know, with all the changes in the AFC South, you know, I thought we got a a decent look at Richardson, a small sample size. Four games is, you know, hardly definitive. But I feel better about him than I do like Will Levis in Tennessee. Uh, just from from what I saw and, and what how he sort of exceeded expectations. C.J. Stroud's off the charts. Bryce Young, do you have any idea what you've got? I, I don't think they do. So yeah, I I, I think it's going to be just by the way that things are set up is with the top, you know, the top of the draft is always is generally teams that need quarterbacks, and if the, if they're if they're not if they if they don't need it somebody below them is going to come up and get that pick. So you, you, a lot of things have to go right. And then obviously you've got it when you, when you pick a guy, you know, Lamar Jackson, what was he? 32. Well, th- then it's, it, it's, he's, he, you, you, you're hoping he exceeds his draft position because that, that's what you're, that's what you're looking for. So, but I still think this is going to be a, a, a select and, and plug and play league just because teams at the top of the draft are going to need the guy and are going to need him to the point that they can't let him sit for a year or two. It's just the, the, the makeup of the league. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 9 and CBS 4 covering all things Colts. Nice enough to take some time with us. Chap, which of the following statements is more unfair regarding maybe overreaction to this season, overreaction to what's happened in the postseason so far regarding Chris Boward and his drafting acumen which statement is more unfair because i'd argue they probably both are man you could have traded up to get cj stroud or man you took evan hole in the fifth round and a pick later puka nakua goes yeah boy i i have a hard time with revisionist history thinking who you take could have taken in round five uh i really think that's that's a reach that's like you know, well, if you thought Robert Matthews was that good, why did you wait right. till what was right. it, the fifth or sixth round? Take him in the second round, whatever. So, yeah, I would say the second one is more unfair because, you know, it, it, it's like the Tom Brady argument. What was he, uh, 199 right. in round six? That, that means the Patriots passed four or five times. So they didn't know what they had. So, so yeah, that I, I, I would say the second one is, is most unfair. But it's all, it's always great discussing uh, who you could have, who you should have after the fact 
But uh, that's why that's why I think that's why you guys have got to show a lot of that. <laughs> boy, you, you can come up with it and say, you know, what they could have done, you know, what they could have done on fourth and one, whatever. So, but that, that's that's what makes most of the time the media environment so entertaining is is you can have these discussions without people trying to rip the eyes out of each other. It's 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 interesting dialogue. But you're always it's always risky when you start looking what you could have and should have done. On a more serious note, Michael Pittman Jr.'s comments either last week or in the past 10 days regarding he wants to explore all his options. I thought it was a very professional way for him to handle all of that. You'd expect nothing less. But when the Colts have a tag, for those that maybe have the ability to tag him, for those that don't follow as closely these early negotiations that happen, when he says he wants to explore all of his options... How much of that is, even though the franchise tag could be looming, his agents working and, and you know behind closed doors and trying to find out where his market value is? Oh, and they and they do need to figure out where his value is. Uh, they, uh, Pittman and, and and his his agents and his dad and all the influence he'll have, and it's really hard. What the, what we're going to weigh, we meaning I guess the, the Colts and everybody is is what is his value on the market, but what is his value to you? And I could almost argue that his value to the Colts is more than his value on the market, uh, which, which I, I don't know where you start negotiating. Well, you start at the franchise tag, which is 21-7, which, you know, it, it's really crazy. He, you know, And of all the things about Michael Pittman that, that I really, really like, I think he's a cool guy. He, he's a businessman. He will not give these guys a, a, a hometown discount, which he shouldn't. He shouldn't. You, get, you know, this, this is this is his lottery contract. You, you gotta you gotta get what you can get. But I, I think, and, and I've talked to Rick Venturi about this, and we sort of disagree, but we agree that you you want him to you, you want as a one him to be more. You want more of a deep threat and more, you know getting off the line and, and you're not like Rick says, you're, you're really be, making your hay between the, the hash marks, but this is what he is. And he is what he is. And, you know, was 109 catches with fifth, but the yardage was gosh, 20 or 25 or 27, whatever it was. You want more, but how much of that is a, is a, is a reflection of the offense the last several years, not pushing the ball down the field. Can he be more with Richardson? But his value, if I'm Pittman, when people says, what's your value to the Colts, you slip in the Atlanta tape when the offense simply could not operate without him. Uh, and maybe that's an, an exaggeration, but gosh, we, we saw how bad they were that day on offense. Uh, and then what's your plan B? Okay, say, yeah, we're not going to pay 20, 25 million. We're just not going to do it. Well, then what's your plan B? It's not on the roster. So you're going to take another high pick and use it. It's probably it's probably going to be another good draft for receivers. If you go out and try to find a, a veteran free agent, he's going to cost you. If he's that good and he's going to be a one, he's going to cost you, you know, mid-20s. So, you know, it's always easier to overpay for your own. But it's – I like his position. That's why he really didn't, didn't make noise this year because he knew what the market was. <laughs> and if he stayed healthy – he he's going to get paid. He just is. I I tend to think the Colts are going to kind of swallow hard and pay what it takes to keep him because of his value to the team. 
Mike Chappell is our guest from CBS4 and Fox 59. Chap, now that you've gotten a chance to, you know, Chris Ballard talked to the local media, um, is there an area that now that the dust has settled, that maybe when he inventories his roster, that he realizes that initially, like at the end of the year, the knee jerk was like, this is a major area of need that now that like once calmer heads prevail, they go, you know, maybe we're not as bad there as we thought. Or I guess conversely, is there an area that seemed like it was pretty good for the Colts, but now that he gets a chance to do a deep dive, he realizes might be a more glaring need than initially assessed. Oh, I think it's the area that, that they knew all along was going to be a, an issue. I won't say a problem, but an issue. And that's the secondary cornerback safety. They knew they, you know, it's not like they, they went out there in September and said, Holy crap. We're, we're young and inexperienced in the secondary. No, that that's what they expected. That's what they, they decided they were going to do from the, from the jump. And then things just sort of worked against them. You know, they, Isaiah, beginning with Isaiah Rogers, whenever that was in June or July, I, those months fade, but then you have injuries, Dallas flowers, and then Juju Brents who had just a awful season as far as development because of the injuries and he couldn't practice. I think they just thought, yeah, that we thought we would be okay if we were healthy and these guys would grow, but injuries kind of kept the continuity and the development, you know, at not the pace they had hoped so I still think they think at the end of this season is they need more back there a corner uh, and Kenny Moore you know Kenny Moore's a free agent uh, safety you know Julian Blackman's a free agent and that's another interesting one because he's when he plays he's pretty good and he's had injury issues so no I I think the ones in receiver with even even bringing Pittman back they need another receiver uh, it's really going to be interesting how. Reggie Wayne and 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 Jim uh, Colbert, the coordinator, view Alec Pierce. W- w- was he was he not effective because of Alec Pierce, or was he not effective because they didn't throw the ball deep to him? I mean, I I, I can think of five, six, seven, ten, ten plays where he's 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 beat his guy and he's running deep, and the quarterback doesn't get him the ball for whatever reason, for whatever reason. So, how much of this was an Alec? Pierce problem. How much of this was a Colts problem? And but even even with that, they, I just think they need that number two guy. They just need a two that you're gonna you know, and you're gonna pay for a, a quality veteran. You just are. But so much we, we talked last year with with going into last year with Richardson is so much of your roster building has to be around giving him as much as you can personnel wise, supporting cast wise as much as you can, as much as the, the, the roster budget allows. And that, that's why, you know, retaining Taylor is important. Can you imagine, you know, they played one play together, Taylor and Richard, in one play. I can still see it was like, it was like a pitch to the left, or I don't know, it was three yards. But what, what they could do, and then you had Pittman, and then you had, you know, the tight ends, or, you know, maybe that's another area you look at in the offseason. But whatever you do, you need to make sure that the quarterback has people around him that make his job easier, uh, you know, re- receiving and running and all that stuff. And the line really had a major bounce back season. So, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the issues, areas of issues that they had 
I don't, I don't think something jumped out at him and said, holy crap, I didn't anticipate that. Defensive line was really good. Offensive line was really good. Linebackers were good. Need another linebacker. They're a little short there now, personnel-wise. But secondary and receiver, I think that's, in my mind, those are the two areas that really need to be top of the priority list. The Dean Mike Chapel of Fox 9 and CBS 4 is our guest. Chap, we need to wait for all the dust to settle and figure out what actual free agents are going to be out there, especially at wide receiver. But one of the critiques against Bauer the last couple of years, especially when it comes to free agency, and yes, there have been some good additions as well mixed in, but oftentimes he will spread out smaller money contracts to players that are average to below average that are available at that price for a reason versus taking like two or three big swings on guys that definitely deserve the money that might help your team in a tighter window. When you look at Anthony Richardson, the rookie contract, and your point, the clear need for another wide receiver within this offense, sure they can go with the draft, but they have corner to worry about too, and so much of that depends on where they are on their board. So let's just stick with free agency. How likely do you think they are to really open the chamber here and take a couple of big swings or one big swing if necessary, to add another weapon for Anthony Richardson? More likely uh, than in the past. I think a lot of things go into that is Richardson and and Shane Steichen. I I think Chris was asked, maybe Kevin Bowen asked him, somebody did, Stephen Holder, somebody about, are you more likely to to alter your approach because of all these things, including Shane Steichen? And he said, hey, if there's a golden nugget out there, and, and it makes sense and is the right fit in the locker room, then, then perhaps they might be more receptive to doing that. Now they're not going to go out and lay out three major contracts. I, I, that's that would be so out of character. And then you, you need to wonder, you know, what somebody did with Chris Ballard and, and who's running the team. <laughs> but I, I, I do think they're going to be more more receptive to, to taking a swing or to a bigger swing. Again, you, you're right, and they've been they've been really good at finding. I guess the mid-level guys, Samson Ekubon was really a good addition uh, back in the day. You know, Jabal Sherrod and people like that, and they, they really. But, but they've not gone after the, the the major guy. I think in their mind, maybe they see more misses than hits when you really lay out the the monster contracts. But I do think they because of because they can they you know Chris Ballard mentioned that they should be they should legitimately consider themselves a playoff contender and certainly a contender for the AFC South and when that's and that hasn't been the case a lot in the past it sort of was with Matt Ryan because they really thought they were going to be better all the way around but I, I think with the makeup of the roster and and the fact that you do that, you've got the rookie quarterback contract, and you know you've got seventy some million in cap space. Although with the Colts, a lot of times it comes down more to cash than cap. It just does. And anymore, your your players want to get more money up front than they do deferred bonuses and all that. But I, but I just think in general they're going to be more receptive to, to going with a maybe one big guy. I don't know. But just because of the way you mentioned the golden nugget, if somebody's out there, we think it's the right fit. They're not going to go. They're not going to go crazy. Well, Michael Pittman's not going to let them go crazy with his contract. And then, by the way, you've got Grover Stewart and you got Rigoberto Sanchez, which won't be a big contract in the total realm of things. Kenny Moore, 
you know, you want to ring back your own, but when you do that, it, it does take, it does take resources and it takes, you know, upfront money. So, but I, I do think we're going to see it a little bit different, but they're not going to be out there throwing money like, you know, like, like they're printing it at the, at, at the complex, but I think they'll be more, more aggressive. Mike, finally, uh, and I don't know how much of this you're allowed to divulge, but um, in rel- in relatively elementary terms, because you are one who is involved in the process, and we now know that Reggie Wayne and Dwight Freeney are, uh, I believe it's finalists or semifinalists at this point for the Hall of Fame, uh, what is the process itself and in getting possibly one, if not both of those guys eventually in? Like, <laughs> excuse me, what is the voting process by that? I mean, for those that are unfamiliar. Yeah, they're, they're what, what we call the final 15. And we're having that discussion this week. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, there's 15 of us who, who present these guys, each one from the local market, I guess 14, because I'm doing Reggie and Dwight. And you, you just, you just kind of lay it out there. And then, then we vote from 15 to 10. And then from the 10, we vote down to five. And it's just, it's just, uh, uh, it's an argument, for, and everybody in that room, the player, the 15 finalists, they're just quality players. You don't get in there if you're just a guy, you know, if you're just a jag, as they say. So it's, and you only get you only get five, you know. And people already think our oh, Antonio Gates is going to be a going to be a guy. That's that means you get four, and we got with Dwight, we got three quality pass rushes with, with him and Julius Peppers and Jared Allen, and then we've got. Reggie and Tory Holt and Andre Johnson. So it's difficult. And, you know, I'm semi-optimistic that one of them gets in. I, 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 and I, I don't know which one it'll be. I've talked to some people about each one of them and everybody's high on each one. And it's just, it's just difficult because to say that he didn't get in because he wasn't worthy, well, that's not the case. It's just that, that our, so- so you it's spell the case, the right? Other guys were, were better because you're the guy that covered them. You you kind of spell the case for the rest of the voters, right? And Correct. then and then the vote is done. Now this is where I get confused. So is it strictly the top five vote getters get in, or does it do they have to still meet a certain threshold of approval? And it's possible that say only two get in, and it's a maximum of five, or is it it's definitively a five? five? It's a maximum of five, and when you get to five. They have to receive eighty percent of the vote. Okay, so, so it's, it's not it's, it's not a thumbs up, thumbs down. It's you still have to get the, the required vote. Okay, so in other words, if, if you are if if you're the third highest vote getter, but you only got seventy seven percent, you are not in, right? You don't get in, right? Gotcha. Okay. And I've always taken the approach that if we go through all this, the meeting is normally eight or nine hours. I mean, it's a long meeting, and if you can fight your way and get to the final five, I need a darn good reason not to vote yes i i just do uh because if, if nothing else then that means that guy goes back into the hopper next year right and the one thing that we hate to have is is the, the backlog at receiver we're getting at it defensive end so again and there have been i'm telling you there have been some people in that room who they they weren't going to vote for this guy come hell or high water they just had they just didn't believe in the person or whatever i've never never felt that strong normally there's there's been three or four guys to get in over the last five years. I I still don't agree with. I just don't. But when they get to the final five, holy smokes, you got to have a real good reason. And I don't know you. You need to have twenty percent of the room be against that player. 
So, but no, it, it's from 15 to 10 to five, and, and then you vote yes or no on the five, and it's got to be 80%. Chap, appreciate the time as always. Uh, get yourself a cold Coors Light and a glass of ice for your big meeting for nine hours when you're going over all of it. And uh, But we always appreciate the time. You guys stay in touch and stay warm. It's cold here on the beach. <laughs> cold in Peach Grove, baby. Mike Chappell, our guest. Uh, by the way, to to go back to the beginning of the conversation, because a couple of people have asked, um, there has not been an update on Jim Irsay from the health standpoint. Still, from the Colts standpoint, uh, status quo, and that is stable and severe upper respiratory infection. Indiana-Purdue tomorrow night, Big Ten. A guy that knows a little bit about the Big Ten that will talk about that with us next is Dave Revson. Tomorrow night is the big one. It will be Indiana and Purdue from Assembly Hall in the Big Ten. A lot to talk about within the conference and joining us now on the program, and I'm sure he's thrilled to be doing so, is Dave Revson of the Big Ten Network. Um, Dave, listen, I got to throw this out immediately because I, I, I kind of get a kick out of it, but I think it's super cool. When I had reached out to you originally about the game being tomorrow night between Indiana and Purdue, you're like, hey, the only problem is we've got a busy day on Tuesday. And then I had to remind myself, that's right, the the Washington head coaching announcement is a Big Ten-related thing now. Does that still yeah. feel surreal to you, kind of? I would say a little bit. I mean, I think it'll feel less so when they're in the league. But I would actually say the national championship game – for me, Jake, was a big part of that introduction. And we, you know, spent some time with the Washington players and members of the staff. And I talked to a bunch of fans and, you know, kind of introduced myself to some fans. I was waiting for an Uber and some older fans came out. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about the transition to the Big Ten. So I think it it seems more real now. But to me, I I feel like it'll seem most real when they actually start competing. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of think about this higher and Jed Fish. I mean, when he coaches his first conference game in Washington, it's going to be a Big Ten game. So it it certainly makes sense for it to be something that we cover, and and we're going to. I just think it's so cool, man. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I know that people, Dave, you know, are like the conference realignment, but Washington, Oregon, UCLA, and USC, to me, and I mean this seriously, I don't know what better word to use, they're just four sexy athletic programs to me. Like, I just think – from both a football and basketball standpoint, each of them brings a cachet to the Big Ten that if you're an Indiana fan or Purdue fan, like why would you not want to go if you're going to do a travel game and get some buddies together and go to a place? I just think it's cool all the way around. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I mean, I think that we've already seen with Washington and Oregon in the football season, and to some extent, USC and UCLA, I understand both of them ultimately ended up kind of having disappointing years, but there's some buzz around both of those programs as well. And so, yeah, you get a little bit of a sense of of what they're going to bring. And uh, obviously UCLA basketball has been a a mess this year. It's a little strange to see it actually, but, you know, historically it's a good program with a really good coach. I feel like ultimately they'll get it together. USC, you know, kind of the same way. They're they're scuffling maybe a little bit more than people expected, but I I think that those – all four of those programs are going to bring a lot in, in not just the major sports, but in the Olympic sports as well. I mean, you're talking about, you know, some of the greatest non-revenue sports programs in the country in some of those schools. So it's it's exciting. I, I get that for kind of Big Ten traditionalists, maybe it's tough to 
wrap your head around. But, you know, this is kind of this is where it's going and, and whether or not the Big Ten participated in it. Someone was. Someone was going to. And so from the Big Ten's point of view, you've got to find the, the schools that make the most sense for you and, and grab them. And, and that's what the conference did. So, Dave, let's go to basketball in its current state in the Big Ten. I mentioned the fact Indiana-Purdue. I want to get to that. But both those schools are realistically in the standings chasing a school that you guys are going to have on the Big Ten Network talking about Wisconsin. Um Take me through the week Wisconsin has ahead and just in general what it is about Wisconsin that has them playing at the level that now has even Purdue, who is a top-ranked team, looking up at them in the Big Ten standings. Well, they're just a really good offensive team, Jake. I mean, they've made a huge jump from where they were last year. Uh, I haven't looked up the latest numbers, but last year I know they were 140th in the nation in offensive efficiency, and when we had them on our air on – Wednesday, they were seventh. So that's a pretty significant jump to go from 140th to seventh. Part of it is is they've been healthy all year, which they weren't really last year. And then they've just had an infusion of new talent. The, the most obvious one is A.J. Storr, who transferred from St. John's. He's just a different level athlete. I mean, if you've watched, there's been a couple occasions where Chucky Hepburn on the break has had A.J. Storr following him and has thrown it off the backboard for store to throw down for a dunk like when did you see that yeah you, you think about like Bo Ryan sitting in Palm Springs watching the game and saying like what is happening <laughs> with my program but AJ Store's just different I mean he's really really athletic and so that's helped them a lot and then they have a good freshman John Blackwell and then guys have gotten better like Max Klesman's having an unbelievable year he's transferred from Wofford he's an in-state kid who um, has just really played well for them so it's it's kind of everything. Everyone came back and and they just seem to have good chemistry and you know they always play well on the defensive end. The difference this year is, is they're just really good offensively. As far as the week ahead, they have Penn State and uh, then they have the Hoosiers at home. So pretty interesting uh, week for them. But they're uh, they're awfully good. They're going to be tough to catch for sure. Dave Rebson of the Big Ten Network, nice enough to take some time with us. Dave, I wasn't going to go this route just yet, but since Jake brought up Wisconsin, I will. Does that mean, based on your analysis of Wisconsin slash what you've seen from Indiana this year, and maybe that changes if they upset Purdue tomorrow night, but does that mean I should not hold my breath about Indiana getting a win in Madison for the first time since 98? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's just crazy to think about that, Jimmy. Um, I mean, it, it seems, look, winning on the road in the Big Ten is just tough this year. And it's not just about Indiana or Purdue. We've seen Purdue obviously go down to, to Northwestern and Nebraska. The Big Ten road teams have only won nine of 37 conference games, the lowest percentage of any conference in the country. So it's, it's not just IU struggles, it's everyone's struggles. And, and we get it. I mean, historically, you know, first of all, these are just great venues with really good fan bases. The games are attended. You know, most Big Ten games are sold out. I mean, that, that makes it hard for a visiting team. Uh, I, yeah, I, whether I would hold your breath or not, I don't know. I mean, Northwestern had a you know, tie game with three and a half minutes to go in Madison. I think maybe even less than that tie game. And then Wisconsin scored the last eight points on Saturday. So I, I don't think it's out of the question that IU could beat them there. They, they would just have to play really well. I realize that, and I don't want this to be a 
analysis of my psychosis now, but I understand I'm crazy for already looking at net and trying to figure out like where things are going to be at in the tournament when in reality a lot of people you know, take the more sane approach that, hey, Valentine's Day rolls around and then you can dive into that. That said, when you look around the Big Ten as a whole, is it still ripe of opportunities within itself to produce, especially in conference play, plenty of tournament bids? Or how do you view the overall health of the conference at this still, albeit in 2024, we flipped the calendar, but albeit this early juncture of conference play? Well, I don't think there are many teams that you would look at, Jimmy, and just say like they're clearly not a tournament team this year. In other words, like Minnesota, we knew pretty early on last year, okay, you know, this just this isn't happening for these guys this year. I don't think there are many that I would look at this year and say that about. Um, I had Rutgers yesterday against Michigan State. They've got a couple of players who, who may get eligible here, uh, one coming off an injury and then one's an eligibility issue that I think they believe can help them. But, I mean, they'd probably be like that one team that you'd look at and say, I don't know, or I guess Michigan probably too would, would be – uh, one Penn State maybe so I you know I guess there are a few now I'm talking myself into a few but then I, I guess the rest of them like so if, if you say those three are gonna have a really hard time having any shot then you got 11 who I think are at least in the conversation like I know a lot of people have probably written off Maryland but they went to Illinois and won yesterday and looked really good doing it you know Minnesota is way improved Nebraska is a much better team than they were a year ago so I think you kind of go down that, that list of teams and you say, you know, how many would be in right now? I don't think it's a huge number. I mean, I think it's probably like six or seven. But how many could get in? Like, yeah, I think 11 could, you know, have an argument where if everything goes well here kind of going forward that they'd have a good chance to make it. Dave, I think there were a lot of people. Dave Rebson of the Big Ten Network, our guest. I think there were a lot of people when Indiana went and kind of laid an egg at Nebraska – maybe snickered about that. Then Purdue goes there and you see, and then I, it's time to admit and realize uh, Fred Hoiberg's got himself a team and they can shoot the basketball. I mean, when they can shoot the ball the way they do, they got a chance in any game, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're a really good offensive team. I, I think Rick Mast, who's a, their big guy who transferred from Bradley, has been a huge addition for them. He just really fits with what they do. You know, Fred likes to – put guys at the elbow and, and use them as kind of almost a, a point center. And Rick Mass does that as well as anyone. He, he's second on the team in assists. He's really, really good at that. And, and he can stretch a defense and shoot it. Obviously, Casey Tominaga is the headliner on that. I mean, just a really dynamic, fun player to watch. But I would say, like, where they've really improved over these last couple of years is on the defensive end. Like, their defensive mindset is so different than it was two years ago. And in talking to Fred, I think he just kind of realized a couple of years ago, like if we're going to win in this league, we just have to be tougher. You're just not going to be able to run up and down the court and shoot eight seconds into the shot clock in the Big Ten and then come down and defend somewhat lackadaisically and win. It, it just isn't a formula in this league. And, and so he went out and got guys who are tough. I mean, Juwan Gary is a tough dude. He last year at Emmanuel Vandermill got hurt, but but was in that same mode. So I, I think that has been a huge difference. I, I know you watch them, and yes, it's the offense that pops out. But I think the defense, the defensive mentality in that change over the last two years has been huge. And yeah, like they're you know they're legit. They're going to have to figure out ways to win conference games on the road. They they did get a great win at K State earlier this year, but but have struggled away from home and conference play, but you go into Lincoln and it's a supercharged atmosphere. They're really passionate. 
it's a tough place to win, as as teams have found out, as you noted. Dave, give me your impression of both Indiana and Purdue. I mean, since they're playing each other, I guess we can kind of wrap that into one. But, you know, obviously Purdue, Purdue we know, really good. You know, those two games, I look at their two losses in the conference, and I, and I kind of write it up more about two teams shooting the ball really well on those given nights. But, yeah. uh, you know, what's Indiana got to do, I guess, and that's been a weakness for Indiana. So does Indiana can Indiana hang with Purdue even though it's at home? Yeah, I think they can. I mean, again, we, we go to the atmospheres and, you know, there's few places tougher to play for an opponent than Assembly Hall. And you throw in the rivalry component of it. I absolutely think Indiana, if they play well, can hang with them. Um, can they beat them? Yeah. I mean, again, like if Nebraska and Northwestern beat them, I don't see why Indiana can't beat them. Would I predict that they would? No. You know, I, I think for some of the reasons that you outlined there, Jake, like I, I, you know, they're gonna have to shoot the ball a lot better. Like part of the way to beat them is to shoot it well. And and I was talking to Matt Painter. I had their game on Saturday, and Matt was saying, you know, we really felt like against Nebraska, they made 14 threes. We felt like we defended 10 of them really well, but they just have shot makers. They just have guys who can hit contested threes. And I'm not sure that IU has a ton of those guys. So that's the challenge. And then obviously defending on the interior, it, it's just a different. It's a different matchup for Indiana's bigs. Like, Indiana's front line, as you guys know, is, is really good. I mean, it's the strength of their team with, with Purdue and Ware and Mbako. It's certainly better than their backcourt. But can he match up with the physicality of Zach Eady? I mean, he just wears people down. And Indiana's bigs are a different kind of big, a different kind of skilled big than Zach is. But, but the strategy for teams when they go up against Zach is – Get him running, you know, put him in ball screens, put him in situations where he's got to chase your big guy around. And, and so that'll be the trade-off there is can you stretch the floor a little bit if he is guarding Renew? Can he step out and, and hit uh, – or, or, you know, even if he's guarding where, can he step out and, and hit threes? Either one of those guys has shown this year they're good three-point shooters. So we'll see. I mean, again, I, I, I wouldn't hold your breath if you're an Indiana fan. But, man, it's a great rivalry, and rivalry games just have a way of, of playing out in a close manner and going down to the wire. Uh, lastly, like I'd mentioned, Wisconsin and Penn State's going to be on the Big Ten Network tomorrow night as well. Dave, we know about the games that you guys do and the studio work that you do in breaking down both the men and women's side of basketball for the Big Ten. But before we let you go, tell me about something that's happening at the Big Ten Network from a programming standpoint, aside from those obvious that people are aware of, that you're excited about, that you think, man, if people knew about this, they would enjoy watching it, be it a feature or something you guys have been working on, aside from just games itself that's pretty cool stuff? Well, I mean, I know it's been going on for a long time, Jake, but I I beat the drum for the journey a lot. I I just think it's the best thing that we do as a network. Um, if, If people haven't sampled it, I just think you should watch it. The storytelling is unbelievable. It, it really helps you get to know the student-athletes. There's so many of these players with just amazing, amazing individual stories, You know, whether it's coming from a small village in Africa and now helping to you know, build a, a school there. I mean, you know, that, like, that's, not a, that's not a made-up story, right? Like, that is something that a player in our league, Mati Sissoko, has done. Um, like, I just think that's amazing. And you get to know those stories. You, you, you find out about 
individual heartbreak that players have had. I mean, Lance Jones, they, they did a great piece on him and, you know, lost his father uh, to complications, I want to say from a stroke. Um, and it was right after he committed to Purdue. And, and it was just, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, but you understand, you know, kind of how much this is meant to him. I, I just think stories like that, the, the storytelling on it's phenomenal. And I think that's really a pillar of our network is, is telling these stories and helping people get to know these teams and, and get to know these players in a way that, that other networks can't do because it's just not part of their mission. Dave, we always appreciate the time. I know it's a busy time, so appreciate it again. Wisconsin-Penn State tomorrow night, Big Ten Network, 9 o'clock tip is when that game will be airing. Appreciate it, Dave. Always have time for you. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Dave Repson of the Big Ten Network. Man, I'm telling you, I'm being serious, Jimmy. Like, if you, you know, if you had a bunch of buddies together and you're like, hey, let's get together for guys or gals trip and, and go watch our alma mater play one of the Big Ten schools on the road, you know, now I think it'd be super cool, even from a basketball standpoint, to go and watch your team play at Oregon or at Pauley Pavilion. Football, can you imagine going to see, you know, your Minnesota fan to go watch Minnesota play at USC? We joked. The Coliseum, I mean, all of it, right? We joked when the reports came out over this, you know, 12 month, 18 month span of who's going to be joining it, the idea of Northwestern going to the Coliseum to go play USC, but. At the same time, as a fan base, being able to now have these new opportunities that maybe you never would have thought of before, to your point, Jake, to have a bingo card or a checklist of new venues you want to go see a game, that's oh, just on yeah. the football side. Like it, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Now, you know what's funny, though, is when I was in L.A., I went to Poly Pavilion a couple of years ago, and I was really kind of surprised by it because I thought it would be this super cool, like historic arena, and it kind of looks like an overgrown like middle school gymnasium. You know what I mean? I'm like, sure. and like the outside of it, you're walking around, you kind of don't, it's just like another building on campus. It, it, although the UCLA campus, have you been to UCLA? I've not, no. Okay, let me tell you. I have always said, it, all you would have to do to recruit to UCLA is get them on campus. You walk around the campus right there and you're like, okay, where do I sign up? I mean, it's literally, you leave, when you're on the UCLA, like when you're in Bloomington. Sure, to be clear, I've seen, I know what you're talking about. I've seen when you're pictures, in Bloomington videos, and you yeah. leave campus, Okay, when you're leaving the campus of Indiana University and you drive out and you go on Kirkwood and then you take a right on Walnut and there's like a Burger King and I think like a dilapidated adult bookstore, right? At UCLA, the University of Kansas, when you leave Allen Fieldhouse, you take a right and you go down to, I think it's 23rd Street, there's a pizza shuttle on the corner, right? The UCLA campus, when you leave campus, you take a right and you go down the hill and you are in the parking lot of the Beverly Hills Rolls-Royce dealership. I mean, it is like, why would any anybody go anywhere else? And we're not going anywhere else either because we're going to come right back. Eddie, warm in my heart on a cold day with a little Guns N' Roses. Love it. What a great tune. Um, You guys saw over the weekend, because I sent you the, the video of verification of it, it happened to me again. This is... How many weekends in a row have I sent you guys a video of me ordering a draft beer somewhere and them saying, we just blew the keg? Three, maybe four. It's it's one of the most incredible phenomenons known to man. I'm not kidding you when I tell you I could go to St. Louis, Missouri and order a Budweiser and they'd be like, you know, we just ran out. So let's play out this scenario. They ask you what you want. You share what you want. 
And more often than not, or in this case, four consecutive weeks, they tell you, oh, we just blew the keg. Yes. All right. Here's my play. I've given you this advice off air. We'll give it to the listening audience for them to kind of chew on. When they ask you what you want, you say something you do not want. And then when they go to get that drink, you're like, actually, no, wait, I, I want this. And then you ask what you actually wanted just to test out if maybe it is a law of whatever Jake says first is not going to be there. Well, I, I think it's more when they then go because a lot of times they'll bring they'll they'll bring a pint that has like half an inch of foam at the bottom, like as proof. Sure. So I I think you have I would to ha- wait for that process yeah, of coming back. Yeah. Well, then get get a second drink that you would be okay with drinking. So this one though, order. the beer gods were shining down upon me. Correct. Because I was at an establishment that had a fairly impressive beer list. I made my order. They came back and said, I didn't realize this, but we blew the keg yesterday. We both, Shan and I both like Snicker. And then the guy says, so we just replaced it with PBR. I'm like, well, well, there we go. Win-win. Now, I'll tell you another one that we went the night before for to dinner. And just so you know, I always have, when I go to dinner, I always have a draft beer at dinner. Like, I don't go out like drinking beer, but I always have a beer at dinner. So we went out. Actually, it was Thursday night, and we went to a specific place that I, I we went to because they have this particular beer on draft, and I can't find it anywhere else on draft. Boddington's Pub Ale. You ever had it? Mm-mm, I've not. Huge fan. Love a good pub ale, though. I'm a huge fan okay. of Boddington's Pub Ale. Now, of course, so then I looked it up, and I found a store that sells it, like the little... And I don't drink out of the can, but it has the like Guinness does. It has a little thing in the can that keeps it, um, whatever. Like I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, uh, carbonated. I guess. Yeah. So I went to go buy. I'm like, oh wow, I found it online. A place that sells it. I walked in. I kid you not. And the guy goes, oh, dude, we just sold out. <laughs> like, what? It is unbelievable. Have you tried ever? A buddy of mine has one of these. I think it's called a kegerator, or like it kind of simulates. Oh yeah, draft, yeah, but it's yeah. but it's still in the can. Like you right. put it in this little machine, and then it. Like if you tried to see if I mean, that's that, if that would like be enough to suspend disbelief for you, so that you're not having to always no, hunt it's draft. Just something about like the 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 seeing it in the glass with the, the I mean it. you know. Did you see them pour the PBR on draft? By the way, or is yes. there any chance they did the switcheroo did, they were and, and right in front it? of me? Okay, so I did right. see it. Yeah, because that's happened to you before, where they popped the can. Oh and yeah, poured I it. T- the guy turned his back to me. <laughs> hey, what, what are we doing here? You know what I mean. Uh, Jake, have you had Little Kings lately? Yes. Somebody brought me some Little Kings. I still have them. I actually had uh, Little Kings cream ale. You guys are probably both unfamiliar with Little Kings, right? We I've did seen this your whole shirt. thing with Kevin Bowen. You've worn a shirt yeah. representing Little Kings, but Little never Kings had it. is slowly starting to infiltrate its way into central Indiana. It was Cincinnati only for a while there. Uh, Mike Sando, by the way, covers the National Football League for the Athletic. Big weekend in the NFL. We're going to talk about it with him next. Welcome back to Query and Company. Massive weekend for Super Wild Card Weekend, and it's not done yet with two matchups still to go today. Now, what's the difference between a Super Wild Card Weekend and Wild Card Weekend? Because without the Super, you don't realize how big the stakes are, Jake. And branding. Okay. Branding is always very important. Okay. So Super Wild Card Weekend still underway with two games to go today. Joining us now, he covers the NFL for The Athletic. He's been around covering the sport for more than 25 seasons. 
He is Mike Sando of The Athletic. Mike, thanks for making some time for us as always. And as we jump right into things, Detroit clearly is the story of the weekend, given the playoff drought, all the cities gone through the 0-16 season. And I have no doubt we'll get to this during the conversation, but I'd like you to kind of settle a, a minor debate that we've had during the breaks when looking back at Super Wildcard Weekend, at least the Saturday and Sunday games. Whose rookie quarterback was more captivating over the weekend? Was it C.J. Stroud and what he did to the Browns? Or was it Jordan Love and some of those exquisite throws that he made against Love's that Dallas a defense? Oh, well, right, Love's fine, not a rookie, fine, so fine. we got to give it to Stroud. Right. I know what you mean. Yes, I know you. what you mean just you. as the impressive debut. Um, <laughs> to me, it's just hard to beat Stroud. I, I just when you look at what that organization was, right? I mean, there's a, Jordan Love had his own challenges taking over, you know, for a legend in Aaron Rodgers, but the Packers have been just a, a, a such a stable franchise for so long. I think we underestimate how hard it is to come into a place like Houston where they were 11, 38 and one the previous three years where before the year people were thinking they were going to be the last team in the AFC and to carry that, as a quarterback who's really making the difference in the games. It's not like they're just throwing the ball uh, 18 times a game and leaning on this incredible run game and the defense and all of that. Uh, He has really shown that he can do it as the leader of the team with things running through him for the whole year. I think CJ Stratton was consistently good the whole year. Jordan Love kind of came on late and then yes, what a great win uh, for him, but the Cowboys always lose in the playoffs. So <laughs> I think you know to do to do what to do what Jordan Lo- or what CJ Stroud did against the number one statistical defense in the league in Cleveland, and make him look silly. Uh, I don't think there's been a rookie. I couldn't find another rookie season as impressive as this one in the history of the game. Has CJ Stroud, Mike, and maybe the answer here is a little of both. But the way that Houston has has played of late is that because CJ Stroud and his composure and leadership as a quarterback is kind of lifting the roster around him or as very good as he is and there's no doubt he's a great player he's great at Ohio State I loved him coming into the draft but has has Houston's supporting cast shown itself to be to have been underappreciated and they are playing at a stability that is allowing his comfort level yeah, well, I think it, there's definitely both those things work together. There's no doubt that they've been better, and you know certainly they're they're wide receivers that you know people weren't talking about before the year, and, and just other players in the roster. I think there's no question their roster um, is better than you know we thought. But I think when you have when you have a quarterback that the whole team believes in, it's kind of like having a great kick returner. When you got a great kick returner, it's amazing how good the blocking is, right? Everyone's out there doing their best because they know this guy might break it the whole time, right? And or any play. I think when you have a great quarterback or a good quarterback that people believe in, it does lift your team and you get the most out of guys. They're playing knowing they've got a chance every week. They could win. They could advance in the playoffs. So they go hand in hand. No quarterback does it all by himself. But when you have a guy you can believe in, I think it does raise the level. So, Mike, let's talk about Mike Sando, who is the senior writer for the NFL, covering the NFL for The Athletic, joins us. Before we get back into some of the different matchups within the playoffs, I wanted to ask just kind of your overall assessment or autopsy of Indianapolis in the fact that, you know, we know they were close because it came down to the last game and Houston came in here and and took that spot. But what are the areas that you look at for the Colts that, that you feel like are the thing holding them back? And are they areas that are quick fixes in the NFL or are they areas that are the hardest to figure out? Um, 
No, I think we're going to find out what they have at quarterback. We saw flashes, so you're not going to change that. I think we uh, liked, in general, what we saw from the new head coach in terms of his ability to you know, game plan or scheme or, or put his players in good position. So I feel pretty good about that. You would have said coming into the year the offensive line was going to be a big concern, but I think they seem to be better this year. So I don't see a huge uh, fatal flaw for the team. I think they have stayed the course you know, defensively, scheme-wise, for for a while now, and you'd like to probably see that element, uh, uh, you know, lift itself, I think. Uh, and, and so that could be, you know, just a little bit of a question mark for them. But I think in general, uh, you're pleased with what happened this season, especially from where they had been before. And now you just want to see how much it can be elevated by having the quarterback healthy and in the system for a whole year, which is a big deal. Mike, I understand that this might be a gray area with my question because I don't understand the the intricacies necessary, necessarily of the Hall of Fame process. But as a Hall of Fame selector in your role, when you look at this class, and of course the Colts have two that are in the running in Reggie Wayne and Dwight Freeney, when you look at the class as a whole, what, what stands out to you the most or, or what are you able to say about the class as they continue to trim down towards who will ultimately be inducted this year? Yeah, you know, I think you're always on the, it's always on your radar of who are the new guys in there that are going to make it for sure. So you would say cuz if there's only 5 slots, right, for the modern era, so you'd probably say Julius Peppers and Antonio Gates were so good when they played that it would be surprising if they didn't go right in, right? Uh so we're really talking about three spots. <laughs> and that's how, you know, that's why some of these receivers keep canceling each other out, whether it's Torrey Holt or Andre Johnson or Reggie Wayne, um, you know, I may like two of them. You may like two of them the best, right? And you're not going to name them all on your ballot. So the votes get split a little bit, even though everybody likes all of them and they're all going to get in. I think all three of those guys are going to get in. It just makes it super difficult uh mathematically. It's really kind of a math equation when you have that many candidates, 15 and really legitimately, let's just say there's 13 candidates if we're going to put those other two guys in for three slots. Well, there's an endless number of combinations that could make it, and you don't really know how it's going to break uh, you know, in the, in the meeting room. Sometimes you're a little bit surprised. So I'm hopeful. I hope one of those receivers makes it in, at least one, because uh, then I feel like we've made progress and we can get them all in eventually. Between Freeney and Wayne, Mike, which one do you feel like was more of like a separator between themselves and their contemporaries when they were playing? Well, uh, my perception of how Freeney is perceived may give him a slight edge because I think, I think it's a little bit of a mistake when people do this, but when, when a receiver plays with a great quarterback, people, people give the quarterback some of the credit. I don't buy that a great deal. I feel like the great receivers get their numbers, unless they just have a terrible quarterback, the great receivers get their numbers. And and so when a Devontae Adams goes to play with Derek Carr and the Raiders, you couldn't tell his numbers different from when he was with Rodgers. They look identical. Now, when he plays with Aiden O'Connell, yeah, that's different, right? When Reggie Wayne plays with Curtis Painter, right, it's different. But when you just have a decent starting quarterback, to me, the receivers get their numbers. So that may be a little bit unfair with, with a Reggie Wayne, uh, on there, but you know that's just a little bit of my perception of how some might see it. Does Reggie Wayne benefit from, and perhaps, Mike, this is esoteric to those of us that covered him game in and game out, right? But 
does he benefit or will it help him that he kind of extended his career by, I guess, evolving as a receiver? He went from a behind-the-defense number two guy, admittedly with Marvin Harrison there, and people say, well, he was Alvin Harper. He was a guy that had Marvin Harrison there. But then once Marvin Harrison's gone, Reggie Wayne not only becomes a primary, but he extends his career by towards the end being a really good, almost possession receiver for Andrew Luck. So he played multiple facets of the position over the course of his career. Is that an observation that only somebody who covered the Colts would make, or would voters be able to see that? Uh, it, that may be more nuanced for so in this case like Mike Chappell is going to give the case for him uh, so Mike would know that Mike would bring that up and Mike would stress that in the room because he's going to get the way it works is we're going to go around the room and and so when it's time for Reggie Wayne um, I believe it's Chapp who's going to do it will have five minutes right he'll give a five minute speech uh, and then he'll hit on those types of points and then it'll be open up for discussion and if anybody else wants to say anything yes, there's 50 people we were going to meet in person that's going to be a zoom because of the weather situation but uh, you'll be able to chime in right I can bring up something like that like I did a study of all of the wide receivers in history and just evaluating their their best seasons against each other so when I did that you know, Reggie Wayne came in at number 10 in the history of the game. So clearly we've got the right guy, right? We've got the right guys here now. Uh, you know, Holt and Andre Johnson were up there too. So we've got the right guys. Each one has their own little nuances like that. In the end, does something like that that you mentioned, is that going to elevate over the little nuance thing for Tory Holt or Andre Johnson? Probably not. That's why it's so hard. Mike Sando of The Athletic is our guest. Mike, I know you had a piece last week that was kind of a cheat sheet for where the coaching carousel kind of was, openings or likely openings that might be there. When you look around the NFL, what is your observation at this point, kind of five days later on that carousel? And is it a foregone conclusion in your mind that Mike McCarthy is going to be out the door? Well, yeah, just about every one of them that I listed hit, uh, which I that was uh, you know I wasn't predicting they were all going to hit, but it seems like just about all of those places, uh, except for Dallas maybe, which I put on the radar, um, have hit. I I don't know what the path forward is for the Cowboys because Jerry Jones has to somehow change the narrative when he has failure. He's the common denominator through all of the failure. He's the one who got rid of Jimmy Johnson and, and has become the star of the Cowboys circus, really, for 30 years. And so it doesn't matter if it's Tony Romo or Dak Prescott or Jason Garrett or Bill Parcells or Wade Phillips or Mike McCarthy. It seems like they always build up the expectations real high, market the team, and then fall flat in the big moments when they're really exposed as not being what they were built up to be. So... Yeah, does Dak and does McCarthy, do they bear some responsibility for this game? Of course. I mean, we got to grade them. Dak Prescott throwing interceptions wasn't good. But I just, I don't know, what do you change that you haven't changed before, right? What do you do? What's the pivot? You get the owner to watch from the sidelines, right? And you put yeah. you put a muzzle on him. It's I, hard to, you can never, you can't, the owner can do whatever he wants to do. And this is clearly the path that Jerry wanted. Right, he wanted to be the star, so here you go. But it means, you know, it, it means that it's always going to be difficult to coach this team. 
I saw yesterday, Mike, you know, 10,000 different people, you know, making jokes about Bill, Bill Belichick was probably already like in Plano, you know, and waiting for the phone call. I, I don't personally think, and my, my buddy Mac Engel, who writes for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, seems to, to think this, he would know it better than I, but that the Bill Belichick, Jerry Jones thing just would not work and Belichick would not be a candidate there if McCarthy is relieved yeah. of his duties. You agree with that? I do. I don't see how it makes sense. Now, that being said, I have heard a number. I, you know, I talk to people in front offices around the league and have candid conversations who, and some of them say, hey, that's my sleeper pick. And I just, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Uh, now, Bill Parcells did it, you know, went there and, and tried it. So I don't know. You know, the, the only thing that would be interesting to me is I, I wrote about this in my column today. You know, these owners, and even to some extent, these power coaches, Sometimes they, when they've been in one situation, they then go to a different situation after that. So I could, the only appeal for me for Belichick would be, hey, did he feel in some way that he was, uh, you know, held back or something in, in New England uh, in, in some way and in terms of he mentioned before the season cash spending? Wasn't that kind of weird? Remember? He mentioned yeah. about where they were in cash. And that that's the type of detail Bill Belichick would never say. And then... Robert Kraft kind of came back after that and pushed back. So does he feel like, hey, if I had a blank check, if I could get, you know, we could do even more, uh, and that's why a Jerry could be appealing? Or is it just more like, hey, is someone trying to put that out there because he really wants to raise the price for Arthur Blank, right? Uh, And he's going to end up there. Hard to tell. Longtime NFL writer Mike Sando is our guest. You can find his coverage on The Athletic, including his most recent piece, Sando's Pick 6, which dives into a lot of what occurred over Wild Card Weekend and a dive as well into the Dolphins, what they might have to do with Tua Tungavailoa. Going big picture with Super Wild Card Weekend, Mike, oftentimes we forget, especially in today's society, about the top seeds that are waiting in Baltimore and San Francisco. When you look at what's happened to this point with them waiting in the wings for who they're going to play and all the drama that Super Wildcard Weekend has provided, anything change in terms of, well, no, the Ravens and the Niners are the clubhouse leaders versus no, this team or this team might be able to kind of turn it upside down and get themselves that much closer to Vegas in the Super Bowl. I thought it fell pretty well for the number one seeds. You know, I, I think that there was some expectation among a lot of us that if one of those AFC North teams made it through, like Cleveland, that they could give Baltimore a tougher go. They already won at Baltimore. They know how to play them, those sorts of things. So I think we take that out of the equation for the Ravens. And yeah, they'll have a, you know, they'll have a, a tough matchup. But I think it's different when it, if it was going to be a Cleveland. So that was nice, I think, for them. And then I think for the for the 49ers getting the Packers. Uh, you know, as a seven seed, that's a good matchup for them uh, with the, where the Packers are at on defense. I, they probably would have beat the Cowboys too, but sometimes when you play the rematch, right, maybe Dallas has a better plan the second time around or things go differently. They have a little bit of confidence. So I, I feel like this is a good, a great job by Green Bay. They're a young team playing with a lot of energy. They may give the 49ers a go, but I think the 49ers have to feel great about their ability uh, coming off a rest with Kyle Shanahan scheming that Green Bay defense uh, to advance. Mike, I'm all in on the Lions dream, right? I, I mean, I'm not like a Lions fan per se, but but if you have yeah. no rooting interest, how can you not kind of appreciate that story? Uh, tell me it's not going to end. We're going to get another week of Lions magic, right? Well, we are next week. We know Well, but I mean, end. I'm saying like they're, <laughs> they're going to get another win, I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I You know, I don't know. I feel like the Lions uh, – you know, 
they've lost some games now too, you know, and they lost to teams like Seattle and, and they, uh, you know, got blown out by Baltimore. So I feel like they're good, but I don't feel like they're beat San Francisco good in the right. end. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if they can get another one out of this thing. Uh, they probably will because of, you know, who's left. <laughs> uh, and that'll be great for them. What's going on with Philly? I, I mean, Philly, like from, I don't know, November to now is just seemingly a completely different team. What's going yeah. on with the Eagles? Well, I was really impressed with them early in the year for winning when they didn't seem like they should have. Uh, and sometimes you are ten and one, but it really kind of felt like a six and five or seven and four. So, uh, you know, their defense has just really fallen apart. I think uh, the burden on the quarterback and the burden on the offense probably got a bit much for them. Uh, I think they've worn down some as the season went along, and then they just seem to have lost some of their uh, togetherness or continuity. We've seen, it's felt like they've splintered a little bit. Um, I don't think the head coach has done a great job of keeping them together as this has gone. He's been a little bit all over the place himself. We've seen that after some of the games when he's winning and he's running through the tunnel and you know, almost saluting the fans. I feel like they've just been a little bit out of control uh, uh, this season. And so that's a really interesting place because they've been to the Super Bowl with this group, but you know, that's a front office and ownership group that doesn't wait around either. So not predicting anything, but like I said before the Dallas game, there's a final score in all of these games that can change things, right? And that may have been the final score for Mike McCarthy. Is there one for Philly in this game against Tampa? We'll see. Mike Sando covers the NFL for The Athletic. Mike, in your preview piece, either last week or the week before, you asked the question, can Kansas City awaken its offense? Have you seen mm-hmm. enough from what Rasheed Rice has meant to them the last couple weeks and their ability to run the ball with Isaiah Pacheco as a complimentary piece to Travis Kelsey? Is that enough to say, yes, it has awakened, or do you still need to see more from them as yeah. they want to make a run? I think you need to see a little bit more because of the team they were playing. The Dolphins were so injured, but I think it's a real positive sign. Uh, you know, I, you've wondered where this has been. Some of it is Rasheed Rice development, but I also just can't help but think with this team, they've been in the mountaintop so many times. Did they really need to have a back against the wall or, or a real game with real stakes uh, to, to maybe be a little bit more focused and play with a little bit more attention to detail? Because this performance felt like that. And it felt a little bit more like the Chiefs. So I do I do read a lot into it. I think it's a great sign for them, but um you probably do need to see it another week against, you know, better defensive resistance to think that it's going to continue all the way through the playoffs. Mike Sando, senior NFL writer for the Athletic. I have an NFL trivia question. I'm putting you on the spot. Are you ready? Uh oh yeah. You tell me what Doug Long and Paul Ward have in common. Doug Long and Paul Ward. Wow. Why should I know this? Well, I don't know that you should, actually, because I, um, I could be wrong in this regard, they... too. Yeah, those are like long-ago players, right? Or... Correct. They are. Um, like, is it? Yeah. Um... Both of them, by my count. Now, there are two other guys, Sam Adams and Kevin Sugarman. Those names ring anything to you? Oh, yeah. No, I know Sam. I, I covered Sam when he was with the Seahawks. Okay, uh, those are the only four guys to come out of Whitworth. Now, am I correct in saying you went to Whitworth, ah, or did I totally great. misread that? Good call. No, well, 
Sam Adams is not the Sam Adams I covered. Sam Adams, uh, that's funny. <laughs> now, this is not the beer guy. This is not the beer guy either. Um, no, I was thinking Sam Adams, you know, he played at like Texas A&M, or te- right? Okay. I mean, he he was a big-time defensive tackle for the Seahawks. No, Sam Adams and Kevin a, uh, Sugarman are Canadian Football League guys. Doug Long and Paul Ward played in the NFL. Well, there's one more, though. There was a Chiefs tight end in the last uh, 10 years, maybe 10 or 15 years. He, he, he was on the Chiefs um, who went there, too. But that's good trivia. That's before my time. So I was there. I was there late 80s, early 90s. So those. So guys you went to been. school there, correct? This is a small, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, a small Christian school in Spokane. Is that right? It, it is, yeah. So I, were I you there. huge rivals with Gonzaga? No, Gonzaga was uh, was before Gonzaga's basketball was really good. We we played, we didn't play them. We were playing teams like Linfield College and Whitman <laughs> College and all of that. I mean, it, it, I had to go to a really small, obscure school to even be on the bench on the basketball team. That was that was the way that worked out. So yes, I played college basketball, wink, wink, on the bench of an NAI school thirty five years ago. Well, listen, so it was I- fun. The one time I've been to Spokane, which I think is a beautiful city, I, my buddies and I were driving through, and we stopped yeah. and had what we thought was like a, a completely exquisite meal that I think might have given us all food poisoning from a place called Senior <laughs> Froggies in Spokane. You ever been to Senior oh, Froggies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's really yeah yeah I know. I get back there every once in a while. I've got a lot of friends there. Uh, they you know that town has the biggest three-on-three basketball tournament in the country. They used to have, like, I mean, tens of thousands of whatever people, 50,000 people, whatever it was. But it was unbelievable. You used to take the kids over there, too. So it's, it's, it is a great town. It's a great It's an underrated golf town if you're ever out there. Did you grow up near Spokane? No, I grew up in Sacramento. You know, my dad had gone to college up there, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, where I was going to go, and ended up deciding to go there. It's funny. In that day, I mean, I took a Greyhound bus up there for my visit. It sounds like it's from the 1950s or something. But, um, yeah, I went up there almost sight unseen, drove up there and didn't know anybody and, uh, you know, made it four years. I I stayed in Washington State. I've been up here ever since. Now, when you were a kid, how much of a bragging right was it that eight is enough was fictionally set in Sacramento? (laughs) It's a big deal. I don't think I knew that at the time. I used to watch that at the time. Yeah, oh, you're a, right. It was a great. It was the best show ever. It had the best theme song. He wrote oh, for the Sacramento Bee. It was great, right? He really did. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, really, really good. So uh, it was fun. You know, I was a. Uh, I was in high school when the Kings moved there, so that was a big deal too. Getting a little bit of NBA and uh, still got a lot of uh, good memories there and good uh, and a lot of family there too. You had no idea we'd start with C.J. Stroud and finish with Senior Froggies, oh. did you? Well, no. Oh my gosh, you're going to have no listeners left if we go much longer. Here, so. he is right. Mike we only had eight to begin with, Mike. Come on. <laughs> we lost them all. Tangent. <laughs> my gosh. All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Take it easy. That's Mike Sando. Covers the NFL for The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Sando NFL. Case in point, educate and entertain. You never know where the what we try to do, roller coaster right? track's going to take what you. What we though. try to do. You know, he was like, wait a minute. How in the world does this guy know that I went to Whitworth University? <laughs> NAIA Christian School in Spokane, Washington. Spokane's beautiful, man. I'm telling you. Like, it's right there. I think the Columbia River kind of goes through there. It's in the far eastern part of Washington State. I'm quickly learning there's a fair amount of the western United States I still need to go see. Oh, man. If you go, if you drive one of the most beautiful parts of the country that I've ever seen, and and it, I'll tell you what's funny, Jimmy. If you ever drive out to to the northwest, so from Wyoming through Montana, but you go up through the northern panhandle of Idaho on I-80, I think it's either 80 or 90, and you come over this like 
this cliff essentially. And Lake Coeur d'Alene and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is is down before you. And it is absolutely like, I mean, it'll blow you away, like the the, the overall beauty of it. Really? And then you realize, I think the thing that, that is so fun about driving out west like that is, I mean, it's so massive that, that you know, you're in, you'll do a 600-mile drive and you go through like two states, right? But it goes so fast because you are head on a swivel the entire time because it literally is just breathtakingly gorgeous everywhere. And when you come up into eastern Washington, there's a pull-off point for a scenic overlook of the Columbia River, and it's one of the most serene and beautiful things I've ever seen. Like, I mean, you're right off an interstate, and you don't even hear the interstate because you're so mesmerized by this ravine before you. And then you get into Spokane, and then from Spokane to Seattle is, is like driving from here to Chicago. There's not a whole lot there. Right. But you get into Seattle, and then... That's a whole different ball game. Whole different ball game. Um, something happened last night in the NFL that I think is something that we all can learn from and relate to. We mentioned it earlier. I'll tell you about it again next. So, Jimmy Cook, allow me to ask you this and answer it objectively. Do I have a choice? That's right. Um, before last night, so as of... 7.30 last evening, what was the best story of Wild Card Weekend? I mean, look, I hate – no, I don't hate to. I love the idea of being able to have a universal point and go kind of like the – like the Simpsons thing, like the Cowboys getting demolished the way that they did right. and for it to happen again at the hands of – like the Packers have won more games, playoff games rather, inside of Jerry's world and the Cowboys have like sit on that for a second. It's, it's insane. Like, so the idea would be the Packers again. And even though the bar was set so low for Dallas, like your seven point favorites, you'll probably win. And then we'll see what you do against the Niners. The fact they stumbled the way they did and Jordan love looked as great as he did. Probably the, the best story of the weekend at that point for me. Hard to argue that, Eddie. The 66-year t- season ticket holder member for the Detroit Lions being able to see the Lions win a playoff game. That's the biggest story for me. But you ignored the caveat. What was the biggest storyline at 7.30 last night? Oh, 7.30? So prior to Lions. I didn't hear the 7.30 That's part. That's all right. It's okay. You were hard at work. It's all yeah. good. So there were a lot of storylines. You had Jordan Love continuing to grow before our very eyes you had dallas faltering you had the bitter cold of arrowhead even though that was really kind of the only storyline because the game itself i think played out pretty much as most people thought it would in kansas city moving on you had um you know the the, those were the big and then of course the buffalo story that so many people failed to realize had nothing to do nothing to do with whether or not they could play in the snow and in the blood. You know, these are what happened to real men. All you need is an extra blanket out there. They'll yeah. be fine. The reason that they postponed that game is because even by Buffalo, New York standards, it was a historic level, absolutely historic level storm where it would have been impossible, not impossible, but it would have been impossible to safely expect people to be able to get there. And they had to they had to keep in mind 
Because just like I said earlier, the COVID Indy 500 of 2020 in August, even though they said like no fans allowed, there were still people that, and I, I love this, but there were still people that showed up to be outside to be able to say like, you know, no, I have to be able to say that my, my foot was on the grounds for that, you know, that kind of thing. And so they could have said, hey, we're going to play this game, but no fans will refund everybody because it's unsafe to get here. And people still would have tried to get there. And, and the roads were impassable. I mean, it was not safe for people that, to get to the stadium. That's a two-part equation because people focus on that, and you're exactly right, getting there. But have you seen a Buffalo tailgate? Like, genuinely. Exactly. I'm not trying to label the entire Bills no, fan base right. as a bunch of alcoholics, but you also have to then get home Correct. safely. No, you're right. Correct. And it wasn't like it. Like, the conditions had I mean, stopped the, the, once you got there. Listen, they were under a citywide or regionwide like travel advisory right. of, so it's hard to tell people like do not go out so that we can try to get the roads under control and then say oh but but seventy thousand of you come to this area right <laughs> so that game obviously taking place today but hey, are you hurt by the way that uh now it's all of a sudden to go back to our debate from last week we got the jv game and then the varsity on the playoff schedule today are you at all uh all hurt by that you mean in the fact that you have Explain what you mean. Well, there. so we had the argument of which matchup was more compelling: oh, oh, Eagles, Buccaneers, yeah, or yeah. Bills, Steelers. Now all of a sudden, you're we have the right. JV it is the warm-up because there's two games. I forgot yeah. there's two games tonight, yeah, right? We got two. Um, all jokes aside, I mean, I, I'm telling you, we, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Buffalo is a is a sexier matchup than than Tampa Green. Do you think? Do you think it'll Philly. be a a more competitive game? Both sides. I know there's two different conversations. I'm not no, trying to get I, you. To, I think Tampa Philly will be the more competitive okay. game. I, depending on, I, I saw they, they. It looked like they have the field cleaned off in Buffalo. Yeah. One would assume. I don't know though. I mean, Pittsburgh could give them. A, I, I think Pittsburgh. I could see Buffalo's offense kind of stalling a little bit, but Pittsburgh just doesn't feel. I mean, how are they going to move the ball? Right without and on the defensive side, like yes, Mike Tomlin gets all the praise in the world, and he rightfully deserves it. Without T.J. Watt, I'm less fearful of that defensive unit. I know maybe that's not right. fair just to take right. out one player, but. He's that impactful. That but Josh Allen is a little bit feast or famine. He'll give you a ball. He you will know? give you a turnover at some point. Correct. How close is the game when that turnover happens? Is I the forgot question. that you're right that that's now the JV game, though. Yeah. Um, okay, so he, here, here I thought is the best storyline in the NFL. And if you live in Indianapolis and you're a Colts fan and the Colts are not in the playoffs, and so therefore, you, you know, maybe, sure, you still have rooting interest in the fact that I could see Colts fans rooting against Houston or Colts fans rooting against Kansas City because you like to see somebody new. Jared Goff had it all, right? Here's a guy in Jared Goff that was born and raised in California that went to the University of California, Berkeley, which is a very cool campus and has produced more Super Bowl starting quarterbacks than any school in the country, believe it or not. And he goes to Cal Berkeley, and he he puts up these prolific numbers, has one of the great single seasons in college football history, and that lands him as the number one draft pick in the NFL, and he's drafted by the Los Angeles Rams. You're the quarterback of the L.A. Rams. I mean, to be the quarterback of the L.A. Rams is so great that they even made movies where Warren Beatty like got to go back and heaven could wait because he had to go play for the Rams. Think about being the quarterback of the L.A. Rams. Your girlfriend is a swimsuit model. You're walking around Santa Monica. People are like, oh, man, Rams quarterback. 
Life's good. By the way, uh, not to undercut the, the swimsuit model girlfriend, but if you want to look in terms of like, if there's ever envy, like, man, like I'm just, I'm never going to be as good looking and, and, and as handsome as that. Look, go Google Jared Goff, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Put him side by side. Yeah. I mean, like he's, he's made for Hollywood. Jared Goff exactly. is made he's for Hollywood. He's a nice looking guy, yes. the whole deal, yes. right? Yes. And he's the number one draft pick and he goes to the LA Rams and he takes them to the Super Bowl and he's part of this pinball on grass offense where he's just throwing up ridiculous numbers. You said a greatest show on turf rejuvenated, basically. Right. And then he gets to the Super Bowl and completely looks lost and befuddled and totally confused by junk defenses that completely threw him out of his game. Okay? And so, meanwhile, in the rust belt, in the, maybe not the rust belt, but in the, like, gritty, cloud-covered, 30 and rainy every day, our most famous moment of the last 40 years is that Kiss wrote a song about us. City of Detroit. They got a big-armed quarterback that the city loves, and they love him so much that they say, we're going to let you out of this misery. We are going to go ahead and parole you. Where would you, Matt Stafford, like to go? And he says, I, trade me anywhere but, but, but keeping me here in Detroit because I've done it all, I've tried, and we just can't win here. And they say, okay, we're going to trade you to Los Angeles. So Matthew Stafford, you go to Los Angeles, and Jared Goff, with your Ryan Gosling good looks and your swimsuit model girlfriend and you're walking the Santa Monica Pier and playing in your home state for the Los Angeles Rams and taking them to the Super Bowl, we are sending you now to Detroit, Michigan because the Detroit Lions are so stuck in mediocrity that even they feel guilty for Matt Stafford and are sending him here to finish what you couldn't get done. And Stafford goes and wins a Super Bowl with the Rams. And Jared Goff, and all that he had at his fingertips in Los Angeles, is sent to Detroit. And you know what? We've all had experiences in life where, and yes, life experiences from the true standpoint do not equate or compare to a multi-million dollar quarterback in the National Football League. I get it. The worst problem in the NFL is better than the you know, the best problem or or the biggest problem you could have in real life. I get it. But all of us have situations, whether it be in our relationships or in our workplace or in our neighborhood where things change. A new neighbor moves in that keeps a dirty yard and has a barking dog and a criminal history. A New company buys the one you work for and changes the pay structure and your HR department now all of a sudden has different requirements for you to take a personal day. Your boss retires and a new guy that you never got along with is now the one that you have to answer to, etc., etc. We all have it. And you have two choices in life. One is to figure it out or the other is to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Jared Goff, when he got traded to the Detroit Lions, they were so bad that the only excitement to happen for Jared Goff in the city of Detroit was that at one point they won a game like after starting 0-9 or something like that, and his girlfriend was so excited by it that the viral the video went viral of her celebrating in her bikini on some beach during a Sports Illustrated swimsuit shoot. 
That was the most exciting thing that happened to Jared Goff that everybody got to see how hot his girlfriend is. Because when you play for the Detroit Lions, you are playing for a franchise that has been absolutely stuck in neutral in the mud and whose prospects look about as sunny as a late November day in Michigan. But Jared Goff went there and went to a franchise that has played, or I should say has won, one playoff game in the Super Bowl era. Right? Two-thirds of this room were not alive the last time they won a playoff Correct. game. They, the Detroit Lions played in the NFC Championship game in January of 1992, and I missed it because I was on a flight. Little did I know that I would be 51 years old before I'd get the opportunity again to see the Detroit Lions win a playoff game. But Jared Goff, to my knowledge, and maybe those in Detroit would know differently, but Jared Goff, to my knowledge, never complained. He never said, woe is me. He never demanded to be traded. He never held out. He never said that he just wasn't going to report. He never contemplated early retirement. Jared Goff just went out and played. And yesterday, in going up against the team that had traded him and having to see the quarterback that had won a Super Bowl that he couldn't win with that team and knowing that half of the fans in the crowd probably were still salivating over the prospects of that other quarterback being the one leading their team. He went out and fired on his first 11 passes, scored through through for three touchdowns, got his team to a lead, and then late in the game when they needed it, came up with a slant pass that was right on the money that got them the first down that salted the game away. He was perfect. He was perfect. He, he completed 80% of, of his passes, 22 of 27, QB rating of 121.8, and without getting too much in the weeds with that, they were timely plays at the right time to the point that McVay's punting the ball with, I can't remember how much time is left, six minutes to go taking that game. They punt the ball with, was it on the clock? 4.07 to go, and they had a timeout, and again, we won't get in the nuance of they wasted timeouts early, so the Rams were already got to stop them this series, otherwise the game's over mentality. But you punt the ball back, and... Maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, they'll make a mistake. Their offense will sputter. We figured them out in the second half. And to your point, Jake, he once again rises to the occasion on that great connection, a route they've run all year. Amon Ross St. Brown, Jared Goff, and they iced the game away. And not only that, you asked Mike Sando, half-jokingly, but like, tell me this run's not going to end. There is every bit reason for fans of the Lions, for NFL fans in general, to think that they're going to go to the NFC Championship yeah. game. Like, I don't mean just because, oh, duh, they're a game away. Like, legitimately, this is the team that they're not going to have can to go on the imagine, road again until the NFC title game. Can you imagine if they – so Green Bay is going to San Francisco, correct? Correct. So they get either Philly or Tampa. So can you imagine – Both of whom I think they can beat. Correct. And if Green Bay upsets San Francisco, <laughs> can you imagine the NFC Championship game at Ford Field? Be insane. I mean, I'm telling you, like I'm half tempted to just say, let's load up the car and go. If 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 the Detroit Lions are hosting the NFC title game, I I'm half tempted to say, let's just drive up there and go right, and then like we'll, we'll go over to to Windsor and go to Roots and get some sweatshirts and some Molsons, and then drive back over for the game itself. What would Motman do? Oh, my, let me tell you something. Let, now let me read you the text exchange <laughs> with Dr. Motman and the fighting Dr. Motmans of the Detroit Lions. 
This is now you got to love this. So Motman was on a ski trip in northern Michigan. He's a native of Michigan, so he's a huge Lions fan, right? right? He was on a ski trip in northern Michigan last week. So he sends me a picture of him on a ski trip. And I said, I knew you'd be on a ski trip because that way you could be going downhill at the same time as your Lions. (laughs) He did not respond. However, as soon as the game was over, I sent him a, like a little, what a gift, gif, whatever you call it, of, of the Lion. And then also of a little pig flying. He wrote back, "Easy game. Next up, please." <laughs> One game in the first, and that that actually he would have been three and a half years old when they last. So the first playoff game he could truly remember, right? Yeah. But he's all in. He told me he's like, "Look, I just want one playoff game." But now that they had the one, he's like, "Okay, now you know what I mean." You got the taste. You got the monkey off I mean, your back. You, now you kind of get greedy, right? Yeah. But it is. But but as you I, should. I mean, like they, like this is now shifted from sweet story to. They'll be the favorite, regardless of who they draw in but the I divisional mean, round. People were crying. That was great. I know. Eddie, Eddie I, I, highlighted. I mean, Eddie, go ahead now. Now go ahead with your. Oh, the sixty-six year season ticket member. Yeah. Yeah. Kept it was eighty something years 89. old, eighty-nine years old. Yeah. I got to see the Lions win a playoff game for the first time. There were people openly At weeping. Home. They would pan over throughout the crowd, like, "Yeah, that that's how much it matters to." I mean, any franchise to go that long. And a lot of the younger faces they showed, like you brought up, Jake, had never seen this before. It's crazy. That's why you love sports. But you know, then the, then there's the other side of it, though, where you're like, when they show like a 25 year old kid, and he's like weeping, and I'm like, dude, I mean, you're 25. But through his whole life, they've been. I, I know, but I mean, in like the it, cellar. It, but what I'm saying is, it's different than like a 60 year old, right? Mean, there there are layers to it's it. It's like yes, when the Cubs won the World Series, and like 16 year old kids are like, I can't believe it, and I'm like, okay, yeah, because you've struggled through nine years of watching this. <laughs> what, what, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, how about look, the people that have been there a century? All right? tears are not created equal, but at the same time, if you have some mileage on you, which rooting for a franchise like the Lions will definitely give you inherited miles. Go ahead and now, ball. here's what they did. You know, the Lions did this, and I'm, I'm getting ready to put on my Detroit Lions head. Oh, you're still upset about the, the lion and the way it's... They changed draw- bubbles. Well, yes, the way it is drawn up. Well, and he's got... So now he looks more like a griffin. He's got like the the, the, the hair in the back, and he's he's ferocious looking, mm-hmm. which I'm not a... I mean, but the, the, the regular, the original Detroit lion on the side of the helmet was... They called him Bubbles because it looked like a cat playing with bubbles, <laughs> and he wasn't ferocious enough. Which is why they sucked for so long. Well, they're ferocious enough now. I mean, think about this. They were the the Detroit Lions got Barry. Sand- they got the greatest receiver and arguably one of the top five. I mean, I'm sorry, the greatest running back or probably top five. Yeah, running back and top five receiver to both retire early. Like that's a feat, right? <laughs> they should hang a banner for that. They were both in the house last night. They should hang a banner for that, right? They should forced retirement of top <laughs> five receiver and top wide top five running back in NFL history. Hell yeah. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day is Super Wild Card Weekend. It concludes, even though it's not the weekend anymore. We'll take Josh Allen as an anytime touchdown scorer today against the Pittsburgh Steelers. We'll also take Jalen Hurts when the Philadelphia Eagles go to Tampa Bay as an anytime touchdown scorer. So both quarterbacks get on the Ground for six. Give me the Eagles on the money line over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Also, give me Josh Allen to throw a pick today. Over half an interception is the line there. One NBA play. I'll scoop the seven. Pacers are getting seven tonight in Utah against the Jazz. You know, if he threw half an interception, that'd be something. It would be, right? Just does ball split in half there? Is that how that happens? Scoop. Scooping it. (laughs) Eddie, you got anything? 
No, nothing for Eddie today. Those oh. are your plays of the day. Uh, JMV has joined us in studio here. There's Jeff Shepard's kid. I'm looking Jeff through. Jeff Shepard was a good player down in Kentucky. Boy, Jeff Shepard. I like Jeff Shepard and Turtle Man. Jeff Shepard was, um, he was the catalyst for them in 98, wasn't he? Maybe yeah, something, yeah, something like that. If I was going to like any Kentucky team, which I don't, um, it would be that group with uh, Pelfrey and Feldhouse. Yeah, and the Unforgettables. Richie, they Richie it? Farmer and his Sean mustache. Sean Woods, baby. Richie Farmer. Now, John, do Went you remember? Went to prison for a while, huh? Did, that's right. He was mm-hmm. um, like the director of agriculture in Kentucky. Yeah. He was pocketing yeah. checks or something. The director of agriculture, Richie Farmer. He was hiding. He was hiding ample amounts of cash in his mustache. I mean, that's the only title with that last name. He's got to have that. Richie job, Farmer but... had a mustache, and he was in second grade. Now, I Richie Farmer, you. when he was at in high school, do you remember Scholastic Sports America? I do. Yeah, on ESPN. Scholastic Sports America. My buddy Dewey and I laughed about this for years. So I, I guarantee you, I, I will stand by that this is true. When Richie Farmer was like a junior in high school in Kentucky. Mays, Kentucky, or somewhere. Yeah. I remember. But they did a feature on him, and they interviewed Richie Farmer, and his accent was so thick they subtitled him. I've never seen that before. But <laughs> That's he what said, they have to do I, on I, comps. I just want to go to the program. I'm feeling the bass. We're like, what? I still remember that's what he said. I just want to go to the program where I fit in the best. But they subtitled it down below because you couldn't understand what he was saying. That's why I bring up Larry Bird all the time. And I don't know where you can find this. I never have. But I remember seeing a soundbite of Larry Bird talking about basketball. And he goes, you know, I like uh, passing, shooting, and uh, dribbling and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds about right. Stuff I get. I've always wondered, <laughs> you know, it, John, I, I, there would be no way to know this because mm. you and I, you know, you would probably know better than I because you would have talked to people in, in that area because you're from closer to it. But when he was at Springs Valley, I mean, I know that he was an Indiana All-Star yeah. and he was obviously good enough to be recruited to Indiana during the time when they were, you know, they had one of the great rosters in college basketball history. But, you know, at what age when he was in high school do you think like he started kind of transcending where people are like okay this guy can play um what junior or senior year people around there probably would say early you know what's funny about larry bird is i i look back at this all the time and he was right in my wheelhouse of you know being a growing up being a fan and i didn't appreciate him enough because he was so easily accessible right in terms of the nba he was so easily accessible around here that i like dr j I mean, yeah. I liked Alex English. I, those Western teams, Walter Davis of Phoenix. I mean, I like Fat Lever in Denver. Yeah. I mean, all these different guys. You know, the Seattle group that, that they had that they won the, the finals in 79, for example, downtown Fred Brown. And that, I mean, it was it's all because we were inundated with Larry Bird. Thus, I gravitated another way. And I always feel bad about that because I didn't nearly soak up enough of, of Larry Bird and what he represented around I, here. I would totally I agree with that. My yeah. dad was a huge fan of birds. And so, you know, naturally, then you're the rivalry aspect. I mean, I, you know, the Magic. I wasn't a Laker fan, but I Magic the Pacers Johnson. Too, and, you know, I did too. But they I always were... wanted to see him beat him. And Devin Durant couldn't guard him, which was very surprising. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, you know, the um, I'll tell you the guy that I loved as a player when I was of that age from an NBA standpoint, that is one of the all-time greats that you, you when people talk about great players, this guy kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I loved Moses Malone. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, big fan of Moses. Yeah, Houston. Man. When he went to when you, you knew Philly, that's that was the last move they made. Correct. Before they finally won it all in 1983, was that Moses Malone? Because you look at that lineup: Mo Cheeks, Andrew Tony, Julius Irving. Andrew Tony was Malone, big in that finals. Bobby right? Jones was a defensive stopper, lanky, six foot nine. Mark Ivoroni was kind of like a Kurt Rambis before Kurt Rambis evolved into being Kurt Rambis. At least a one year, one season, Kurt Rambis. Hey, Mark Ivoroni. I went to a game at Market Square. Mm-hmm. Devin Durant might have been on the floor, actually. Probably was. Brooke Steppy, maybe. Brooke Steppy was out there for sure. The brown curtain was pulled over. I was with my buddy Dave Steinberg and our dads. We were in Mark Ivoroni scored, and the guy in front of us threw down his beer, stood up, turned around, looked at the four of us, and said, I'm not going to sit here and continue to watch this team get their ass kicked by Mark Macaroni. <laughs> Got up and left. <laughs> I'm like, that's the Pacers of 1985, baby. We went to a Sunday afternoon Laker Pacer game, and the fact that Kareem was playing was probably breaking news. I don't think he crossed half court twice. He played in low top Adidas canvas shoes. Oh yeah, that that probably that probably, you know, around 88 or so would have cost you $10. And you were just there to see, like, the Bill Cosby concert afterwards or Casey and the Sunshine Band, right? We got pulled over in my dad's van on the way up here because we were giving the finger to people on the 37. (laughs) And the state police pulled us over. And I was more concerned about not us getting in trouble. I was afraid my dad may have been drunk. (laughs) So I'm just glad that he wasn't drunk. We We got got pulled over by state police for giving the finger to passing motorists. We got pulled over on the way back from the International Festival in Allisonville in fifth grade because Brian Rodocker at the back of the bus flipped off a cop <laughs> and the cop pulled the school bus over. <laughs> like, hell yeah. Uh, John, what do you got upcoming? Uh, we're going to get the fingered at no, um, we're going to do uh, JJ's out, Jeremiah Johnson's out in Utah. We'll do that. Rob Blackman, voice of the Boilers, obviously, and Stephen Holder, too. A lot of stuff. All right, sounds yeah. good. John's up next. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon on this Dr. Martin Luther King Day, everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.